Welcome to the Ether. Today is Monday, November 7th, 2022. Today on the Ether, part one of a two part Chepe space discussing tokenomic design basics. Let's take a listen. Hey, Casey. What's, what's up, up? Sefi? How you doing, man? Uh, not too much. Just thought uh, we gin up a <laughs> Just bit. getting ready for a tear, is it? Yeah, why, yeah, not? why not? Let's <laughs> do it again. Finished up some work and sitting down for a bit. Right on. Quimmer, how are you doing? Yo, I'm good. I'm Casey. Um, Casey Imagination. Good evening. What's up, buddy? Good day. Yeah, good I'm day. Good. I'm good. Yeah. Winning. I. What's up, Beast? Um, Beast mode. What's up? Quim, did you finish any finish any books lately? Yeah, currently I'm actually reading the book right now. But not not from the books you actually like. I recommended. I have like a job, so I'm reading some books on marketing by Seth. I don't know if you're familiar with marketing books. Uh, not at all. Oh. How the Cadillac got its fins. Best <laughs> book. Oh, there's a book called that. Yep, How the Cadillac got its fins. It's a thin book of short stories about companies that were failing until they struck gold on marketing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. The I'm still um largely just thumbing through the uh, rainbow and the worm, which is the physics of organisms. It's fairly complicated, um, especially when it gets into the math I haven't done in, I don't know, a very long time. <laughs> Most of it's straightforward, though. Mostly cell biology, I'm guessing? No, it gets into kind of like the underpinnings of how physics influences uh, why biological things do what they do so it's a little bit deeper than um it, it's it's a more of a base layer more so than just like cell biology or something like that are we talking about like how permeable the cell membranes are to no no even or... even deeper than that like sort Ooh. of why for like uh i don't know how, how like nature has evolved to utilize uh physics principles in its creation like you know for energy transfer for things like dealing with entropy and um uh yeah just how sort of like uh, matter and energy sort of come together to create uh, living systems is a little bit more my my buddy's friend is a evolutionary biologist and this sounds very familiar yeah this is a biophysics book that was recommended by uh ethan buckman the founder of cosmos or one of the founders of cosmos and he modeled some of the ideas of um, the creation of the, uh, like the, the tokenomics for cosmos chains um, is somewhat modeled in at least mental ideas that come from like what life does. Uh, so I, I thought it'd be an interesting thing because that was his sort of degree at an undergraduate level. 
And to some extent, these kinds of influences tend to modify our thinking about how stuff works, right? Not to say that like <laughs> the blockchain is based on specifically biological things, although I could argue that maybe you know, it should be. So that was kind of a little bit of the discussion about um, uh, today was kind of might be interesting about delving into uh, like token design. Um, I've seen a lot of people uh, most recently discuss token design regarding arguments related to the Luna Classic chain, which kind of uh, is sort of in flux. People are trying to decide like what they want and what they want to incentivize. And I think the way to think about um, blockchains is that their design is meant to achieve some sort of endpoint for their creator. And their design is meant to uh, meet really just certain goals. And a lot of the goals tend to be financial incentives of one sort or the other. So, for example, if you build a system like, I don't know, a global system, for example, that's designed to encourage lending and borrowing, then, of course, you'll get more lending and borrowing. And so, like, you shouldn't be surprised by that. On the other hand, um, if you have like an inflationary versus deflationary economic model uh, for like a country or a currency or whatever, you're going to have certain outcomes that are related to those um, features, some of which could be good, some of which could be bad. Um, so there's like, for example, there's arguments against like a fix, fixed monetary world supply, for example, um, that the rich will tend to become richer. Um, there's also um, some arguments that, um, yeah, there's tons of economic theory. I don't want to kind of go into all of those things, but maybe just kind of cover some, you know, questions people might have about um token design so like i i posted a few up top uh just to kind of like mm, maybe discuss some interesting token designs and why they're designed that way um and you can begin to see like okay this is sort of like the due diligence you need to be able to like um navigate ideas about like maybe what crypto you might like or that might fit your mental model of um economic philosophy and things where, like that. Where do I, if I'm looking at that, where do I start to get a grip on the basics? Is it inflationary versus deflationary? Yeah. So there's uh there's a, there's a number of, yeah, there's a lot of different elements. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot of different things you can incentivize. First of all, do you want people to incentivize holding a coin? Do you want to incentivize lots of transactions on a chain? Uh, like economic activity? Do you want to, uh, incentivize a system that um, accrues value over time? Do you want it just to be a transient store of value? Like, for example, if I just want to send money from one place to the other, but I don't want to hold the token, for example. Uh, so that's a different type of model. So you, you have to think about all these things as kind of information systems. What is the cost to store that information? And how long do I want to, um, like, own a piece of that network versus simply transact on a network. Yeah. A lot of different reasons why. Um, is it, is it appropriate if I say store exchange or use as a, if I'm categorizing this, can I, does that? Yeah. It's kind of all of the above. I think store value, medium of exchange, um, you know, the kind of basic currency functions obviously are there. And then the additional features of computational networks or utility of various types, right? 
Um, so this is true of metals. You, this is true of metals too. When we say utility, how do you, you mean utility is in terms of like using blockchain technology for medical records, data keeping versus yeah, currency. Exactly. Is that, okay. So okay. Data collecting or for, um, other interesting properties. Um, ultimately it's all information. Um, it's, it's information stored in a computer system is really what we're talking about. Um, whether it's a centralized or decentralized system. And then, um, yeah, how do you assign value to those things? Like, for example, your Gmail account, if anyone here remembers, um, like, either the beginning of internet email or whatever, I think the first, one of the first major free uh, internet email services was Hotmail. And that got bought by Microsoft at one point. Subsequently, Google Gmail had their um, beginnings. And they gave away email for free, essentially. Uh, you could... And then eventually, even the cloud storage on there is basically free, too. You don't have to pay for storing things on there. And they did that, but they gave away the stuff for free to increase the network value of the Gmail network or, you know, increase their number of users. They used to also do it through portals. Like if you went to Yahoo.com, you know, everyone uh, would get their news on Yahoo and they would get um, other network effects there. They would buy products so, there. So wait, so, so that's an example of bypassing the immediate gain in lieu of mm -hmm. utility to gather future gain. Yeah, and, and just the idea that email itself is kind of a currency in a sense because you it has value. But interestingly, you don't pay any taxes on your free email services, even though someone's giving you something, which is interesting too. Um, so think about everything as digital value transfer or digital information transfer. And all of those components are, are worth something. They're worth something to people. And um, cryptocurrency um, uh, outside of Bitcoin, like anything utility related, is the idea of assigning uh, the ability to make a monetary transaction with that utility. So... Um, so, so ex notable examples of utility coins, for example, are things like um, DVPN, which is a VPN provider. It's a Cosmos coin, and you can pay for DVPN, or, which is a VPN service, using their coin. And, um, you know, that just represents an example of something that has utility. You, you Like, why would they use their own coin as opposed to, like, I don't know, any other coin, like a Bitcoin or just cash or something? They're interested in being decentralized enough that even the payments uh, for their coin, they're not even accepting like regular cash. Um, they, uh, why else would they do this? There's also the security function. Like, like what does it mean to be a security? Like think about a stock. Um, a company issues stocks to raise funds to represent some function of the, the value of that company. So many cryptos are securities. Um, in fact, most are securities, honestly. And um, that's why, like the SEC and whatever, get involved, right? Because they are—they're just securities. Where where they're different from securities are, like take for example, I don't know, um, a, a DVPN token. You don't you yes, when you buy the coin, the price of the coin goes up in a sense, and that is good for the coin producer, like DVPN, so they can make they can sort of sell and dump on you or whatever. Uh, but the other thing is. Um, that's different from like Apple stock is you don't use your Apple stock to pay for, uh, I don't know, your Apple iCloud account, for example, or groceries right? or groceries. So you don't, you don't right or, or really you don't pay anything on the Apple network with Apple stock. So that's, what's different between a 
a traditional security and these kind of quasi-security um, projects that may be fundraisers on one hand, but they're also a token that does something on the other hand. So this is where like uh, the the line gets blurred between what's a commodity, a security, and what is a currency. Because in the traditional world, securities were not used as some sort of medium of exchange, at least not directly, right? You didn't trade your Apple stock for Google stock. You sold your Apple stock and then you bought Google stock. Or, and you didn't buy things on the Apple network using Apple stock uh, as an example. So these are like the difference between these different... Um, kind of like forms of value storage. And then, so you, you get into sort of different, um, like I'll give you some examples of some different tokenomics and like maybe what, like why they are the way they are and what makes them interesting. So I think the most uh, obvious basic one is Bitcoin. Um, it's a fixed supply. Um, how many coins doesn't matter, 21 million, a billion, like the, the coin count is irrelevant. It's the total market cap is usually the, the, val the number of coins that are out in the marketplace multiplied by the current price of the coin, that gives you the market cap, which is the total valuation. So you could have Bitcoin could be 210 million coins. It could be 21 million coins. It could have 10 digits after it. It could have, you know, any number of like divisions. These things don't matter. Um, ultimately, um, you know, the, for whatever meme effect or whatever the hell, um, Satoshi Nakamoto picked 21 million. Uh, decided that was going to be the number, and that was that. Um, there wasn't. There's not anything particular about 21 million that's better than 20 or 200 million or something like that. Um, so the coin count is not really particularly relevant. Obviously, it's supply demand determines price. Um, let's say. Um, so in in Bitcoin's example, it's a fixed supply, and the miners are incentivized. How they're incentivized by. Um, basically, uh, uh, acquiring Bitcoin for doing the hashing uh, and securing the network, and they're by securing the network, you're simultaneously, um, you know, providing hash power, which then uh, ultimately gives you a, a reward of Bitcoin every once in a while. And as a result, miners are incentivized, and the higher the price of the coin goes, the more incentivized they become. Especially if the cost to the the price of the coin is higher than the cost to mine, which includes things like expenses like mining devices, electricity, um, and the deprecation of mining devices as they deteriorate. All of that gets into your expenses, and you know miners want to make money, so they're the miners are incentivized by making money. The individuals are incentivized in that it's a fixed supply coin and that the probability of the value going up over time is substantial because there's no inflation. And um, eventually supply shocks occur where there's not enough coin on exchanges and such. And then price just starts to climb because there's none left um, available. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind um, like a fixed supply thing. Um, it has certain uh, properties. It's a little bit deflationary too in the sense that some of the coins are lost in maybe some decimal points of coin or left in wallets, or maybe, um, you know, some people just like have a wallet, but they forgot a little bit of Bitcoin in it or whatever. Right. So there's some of that just, you know, a little bit is lost just to helter skelter. Some people probably have Bitcoin that die. They just like lost it. <laughs> like they don't, nobody knows what the, 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 the keys are. So some of that, you, there is a bit of deflation that occurs due to losses. And then, uh, but, and then it's inflation is limited to the, uh, the the hashing rewards, which I think right now, what are we at now? Like 19 million Bitcoin or plus something like that. And there's 21 million total. So we're not that far from the total supply 
but that remaining total supply will probably take at you know who knows what the computing speed is going to do but let's say 100 years or something like that you'll have mined most of it and then you know people have argued as you get closer to mining more and more of it you know is it going to be able to uh, reward the miners sufficiently with enough reward to make sure that they can survive and there's some debates about that and and um you know, people are still like thinking about it. So Bitcoin's just the most simplest example. Why? Uh, so why then do proof of stake networks? Uh, and by the way, proof of work networks, which would be anything copied of, you know, on the Bitcoin model, like whether it's like hard forks of Bitcoin, like a Litecoin or a um, Bitcoin Cash, different block sizes, and all this other stuff. Most of those are fixed supply coins. Um, and with certain sorts of, you know, like mining speeds in terms of how many coins are coming into the market per year. And um, they vary in this regard. So, but they're all very similar in terms of their overall performance and capabilities. Uh, whichever ones have the highest network effect, which means that the number of places that uh, um, buy, you can buy and sell those things and the number of users, it tends to drive price up. Um, also, you'll notice that like hashing power in proof of proof of work networks increases year over year in networks that are typically growing. Uh, you have to imagine that, well, miners are more likely to mine if they feel like they have a market for their coin. And um, if, if they don't feel like they have a market for their coin, less miners will show up. And then, of course, no, no, less supply shows up. And then, of course, the price can rise again. So, you know, most of the, the, the proof of work networks uh, have not died off. Like even people that said, oh, Litecoin is bullshit and Bitcoin's awesome or whatever the hell, uh, most of the networks have actually remained and they continue to this day. Um, they haven't died. <laughs> so it's interesting. So the proof of networks, proof of work networks basically incentivize miners to basically uh, secure the network. Proof of stake networks, um, which emerged, uh, like I'm not sure who the exact first one was, but uh, one of the first was Jay Kwan with Cosmos uh, when he uh, first proposed the white paper, I believe it was 2014. Um, of course, uh, some other people sort of uh, got to proof of stake, stake networks as well. Like for example, the Cardano Foundation, ADA, uh, and a few others. Uh, Ethereum is now proof of stake. Um, and most of the crypto space has gone the proof of stake route. Um, and what a proof of stake network has is a series of validators. Um, different arguments have been made as far as like how many validators you should have. If you have too many of them, then what happens is, is you have too much division of power and nobody's vote really counts, you know, in a sense, uh, because the, the voters at the top will have typically a large amounts of voting power due to the number of people delegating. And then you'll wind up with too much dilution. If you have too many validators, if you have too few validators, it's easy to like go one by one and shut them down if someone wanted to shut them down. So there's some like magic numbers where um, you, you have these validators and they're paid through inflationary rewards. So uh, take, for example, up at the top here, Luna, uh, I believe has like a 12% yield at the moment, which means that when you stake with a validator, uh, the validator is making some money, you're making it, which is in the form of some commission, let's say, uh, you know, five to 10% of the yield. And the other, like 95 to, to um, you know, 90 to, 90 to 95% of the yield goes to the, the delegator, which would be you. And you're basically getting 
you know, whatever, most of that 12% yield that you're staking yield. Now, the staking yield is set up in such a way that the validators make money. They don't have to rely day to day on specific amounts of demands of the network. Say, for example, transactions. They don't have to be, they're not getting paid like on a per transaction basis necessarily. They're, um, they, they can get paid just a fixed amount based on inflation. And there are some math that goes into some of these inflation numbers too. And I don't know all the different nuances between how the different systems are designed, but you can put in some different ideas. Like let's say there's not enough stakers on the Adam Cosmos hub, then you can make it so that the inflation rate is higher so that the people that do stake can make actually more um, rewards compared to those that don't. And then the staking rate, let's say a lot more people stake than the um, available um, uh, staking rewards go down. And the reason you do that is to sort of incentivize uh, the security of the network, meaning you incentivize through yield um, the, the p more people to stake, okay? And so you might ask, well, well, is it bad to have inflation? Not necessarily. You just don't expect necessarily the top end of price to go as high. You're mitigating some of the fact that you're not making as much because the, the coin supply is going up, up, and up. You, that reduces the potential top end of the price, but it also reduces your daily risk because you're getting back yield from, as opposed to those that don't stake. So people that do stake, let's say on Luna, are getting 12% yield. Those that don't stake are having their coins diluted, right? That's a very that's a very specific um, element. So so those that are just speculating on the price of a coin are not getting yield because they're not staked, and they want to be able to sell and buy whenever they feel like it. So that's that's perfectly fine. They can do that. And then those that simply want to stake can get their yield, and they are getting a greater proportion of the network over time, especially if they are restaking and keeping their yield, right? So your proportion of the network as a staker is rising compared to those who are not. So you think of it as a piece of ownership of the network, and you consider that when you're selling your staking yields, you're relinquishing a portion of your network. You're actually your your size of your ownership of that network is actually going down if you sell your staking rewards. In many instances, depending on the rate of inflation versus the rate of the yield, the inflation rate might actually be very close to the yield rate, meaning that like any if you don't hold your coins, you're actually losing a fraction of the network compared to the total number of coins on the market. You're you're being you're diluting yourself. Well, well, if you, the more coins that emerge, if you don't keep your coins, you are actually being diluted by those that are keeping their coins, if that makes sense. So anyway, there's, um, so you're kind of treading water to some extent with yield. Um, you're not necessarily making any money uh, just because you're earning yield. You're technically speaking in many of these networks, simply treading water and keeping your portion of the network. Hopefully that makes some sense. Now, if you think of, um, like Kujira, for example, which is another one I posted up top, they have a system where they're like, well, we don't want to have this much inflation. We want to have very limited inflation. I don't even know if they have any um, to pay their validators. And their, their concept is, well, look, the val we'll keep the yield only what is earned on the network. So if there's transactional yield, like from fees on the network or you know, other functions of that blockchain, then that yield goes to the coin holder as profit, or, or like think of it as almost like a dividend, like if you owned a stock, because this is transactional income that's coming in and you keep that proportion of the transactional income. That's how Kujira designed it. 
they designed it because that way so that they don't have to face concern like tokenomics concerns about like ever increasing inflation um but on the flip side it's like well a lot of people don't understand the nature of inflation so they're like hey i want high yield and so they might say see kujira and say wait their yields only you know one or two or three percent why is it so low why is adam's yield 19 percent? why is the stars yield 60 percent? like what are these numbers why would i take the one with the lower yield right um, well, it would depend. Like, if you presume all else being equal, the price of all of the coins would go up the same, which is not true, right? Then, uh, which is not necessarily true, um, then the the yield that you earn, yeah, if they all went up equally, then of course the one with the higher yield would be better, in theory, for you. But um, but that's not necessarily the case. Very high inflationary yields will tend to create some downward pressure on price over the long run. We're talking about years. They don't, but tokenomics don't really have a very strong role in price action in the short run. Like for example, like if I go and buy, I don't know, let's see, let me think. I think the Huawei chain, which is the meme coin of the cosmos, HUA, HUA, it has a very small supply right now. I think it's like $20 million worth of market cap. If, if I were to go buy like $10 million worth of Huawei coin tomorrow, and clearly, the price is going to spike a lot, and um, even if the yield is sixty percent inflationary, that spike in price is going to remain until I decide to sell because I own, I would own like half the supply, right? So in that context, even if the yield is high, um, if you happen to buy early, it's still good for you, uh, even if it's inflationary. It may not matter in the short term. Price can move a lot, regardless of what your tokenomics are, and that should be. Um, a very, very important rule for everyone to remember, just because you make changes to tokenomics, maybe a burns, burning of supply, or you create like some inflationary or deflationary model, this is something that affects token prices over um, you know, years and years, um, except for the fact that like tokenomics in crypto tends to have a meme effect also. So people might say, ooh, we're going to go buy Luna Classic because there's a burn mechanism. And they did, by the way. We we were able to successfully memify that to the point where, like, you know, billions of dollars showed up and pumped the coin price quite high. And that's because the burn effect, while it's a very, very long-term effect, like five to ten years, to really make a massive impact on price, people don't realize that. They see the price go up and they're like, oh, look, the burn is working, the burn is working. And therefore the price is going up right now because of, of the mechanism. That's not how this works. The reason why the price goes up in the short term is simply acute supply-demand um, changes, where this, the demand dramatically increases, and the you know the, uh, the available supply on exchanges um, is somewhat limited, and the price pumps and everything goes up, right? So, so I would say ninety-five percent of price action—I don't care if it's Bitcoin or anything else—in the short term is purely supply-demand. I would probably mathematically attribute to maybe five percent of the total price action uh, to um, to the actual token supply, if you were to make a change, um, like, you know, anyway, any token supply change um, really doesn't materially matter um, over the long run, but it can make a psychological impact in the sense that, like, if you create me a coin that makes a lot of sense from a tokenomics perspective, I might be willing to buy more of it 
and invest more of my money in it, whether it's a Bitcoin or whatever, right? So the probability that people are going to say, hey, I can trust this with my money because the tokenomics doesn't burn my money away as inflation, then you might find more proponents of that particular coin. Um, so that would be like the argument that Kujira's made is that, well, we don't want to inflate away the value. We don't want to um, you know, have our supply go really high. We want to keep that under control and we want to pay people with the um, the, the revenue from the actual network and pay that out. Um, so there's other mechanisms too that are interesting. Um, you've probably heard of stock buybacks. So stock buybacks are where like, for example, the, the Apple company is has been noted to do this quite a bit the last 10 years. So Apple, uh, what they do is when they make a ton of money on smartphone sales and um, people that own Apple stock, you know, you might own a certain number of shares and there's a certain number of shares outstanding out in the public. And those shares represent supply that can be sold, right? Or shorted or anything else. So what the company does is they slowly buy back stock with the revenue from the profits from the sale of smartphones and cloud services or whatever, right? The profits they make, they buy back the shares. And that's a different way of returning shareholder value back that's different than paying dividends or the price of the shares going up. Right. Um, or, or price of the shares going up immediately from some sort of um, whatever news or something like that. So long term, the less supply of shares there are, the less diluted or more concentrated the shares become, the, um, the, the there's opportunity for price to go up for that reason. Now, that doesn't mean that if Apple suddenly does a terrible job and produces shitty phones for five years, that your stock is still going to go up. Right. The, the, the supply and everything. Um, the presumption is is that the the supply is going down because they're profitable, and that for therefore like is adding to a value accrual mechanism because you're taking shares off the market. Similarly, that could be said of crypto. If you buy back shares in the form of like a token burn mechanism, um, I think Stars is doing that right now. It's one of the reasons I posted that up here. Uh, if you buy NFTs and things and you use their uh, system then during the, some of the fees in that network are burning STARS token. So what does that mean? It's the, no different than a stock buyback because it's attached to revenue of the network. So profits are being used to buy and then destroy the STARS token to, to improve tokenomics that way. So it's a counterbalance to the inflationary mechanism of the STARS token, which is quite high, by the way. The STARS token, I think, was like a, maybe 120% inflation. I think now it may be something like 60, something, whatever. I, mean, I could be wrong, by the way. The numbers are all over the place. They're high. Why did they decide to create a high inflationary system to start with? Well, the reason they do that in the beginning is, one, um, they want to make sure that um, there's a high incentive for early per entrance into that network. They want to make sure that early validators are paid so that a lot of validators are interested in showing up. Um, it is dilutive to new investors to own, to own the token at the beginning, but at the same time, the upside is really high for the token in the beginning as well. So it's more probable that people are going to buy a lot of tokens and get a lot of inflation, but also there's a clean mechanism to pay validators. And then they have a system where over time, like the interest rate goes from 120 to 80 to 60, whatever it is, and, and it keeps dropping. So Osmosis does this. Um, Stars does this. A variety of tokens in the cosmos do this where inflation is dropping over time. And that is better for the, um, in particular, for the people that were there earlier on. So this is an incentive mechanism designed to help people to hold long term. 
Um, so you have to ask yourself, like, what are you trying to incentivize? Are you trying to keep the old users to, uh, from leaving? Are you trying to attract new users to arrive um, using different incentive mechanisms? Um, all of these things have an impact on the, uh, the token design of any given coin. And um, there's also sort of like a lot of philosophical concerns too, and we'll get into that. But maybe we can like get some questions in here because some people popped up. Hey, uh, let me get uh, Enola first because they're waiting. But Enola, what's up? Any thoughts or questions on the subject so far? I don't know if you're listening. Mm, maybe AFK. Donku, you there? Hey, Donku, how's it been? Hey, sir. Long time no speak. How are you doing? Great to see you up here. Uh, Right, right. Just chatting about token design and stuff. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> so, it's, it's any thoughts cool. on all that? No, happy, happy to listen to you and this kind of stuff. As you know, um, I just wanted to add uh, a little bit of perspective. What I see often in there, it's like, I, I think you're right in saying it's inflationary supply, but I personally am struggling to call, for example, stars inflationary because the tokenomics is not inflationary of stars, right? So they have a finite supply as osmosis, as Juno, not as Atom at the moment, they and also Secret, both are truly inflationary. But from a tokenomics perspective, Kodira and Stars, there's no difference, right? In terms of they're both finite. It's just that they decided to uh, have yes. a different schedule in terms of decentralization and how much tokens hit the market when, right? So because... Yeah, and I think, so Don is clarifying, there's a difference between tokens whose maximum supply is fixed, but there's a distribution schedule that favors early investors versus um, a token that's infinite supply, which would be something like Atom right now, where the the number of coins just keeps rising to infinity over time. Um, and yeah, so there's definitely, and then changes can happen theoretically too via governance to some of these kind of mechanisms. So that's another issue with, uh, you might buy some token thinking that you're it's going to do one thing, and then years later via governance, people may change it and it may not favor your thesis. Like maybe you need the yield for some reason or something and people change that. Um, it can change sometimes the way uh, holders of those tokens are going to behave. So it's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of nuance to the way you can release these. And, and there's different reasons too why you would want different forms of inflation. Do you want to favor the early token holders? Do you want to, you know, hold, you know do you want to eventually create a fixed supply system so that the price eventually has supply shocks and rises. But, and then like, for example, Donku, uh, I think you have a validator on osmosis, right? Or do you not? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So osmosis has a, f the long term, I believe is a fixed supply, correct? Uh, yes. Well, they are doing third innings every year. Third innings. Yeah. So when, uh, okay. So the, the amount of tokens that are coming in out are going to be less and less with each, kind of year is that what it was yeah, exactly. but is it, it is eventually going to go to zero or is that going to be a permanent because it's turning it's never literally zero so it's asymptotic it's to zero. exactly yeah okay to zero so so each year like the the inflation decreases and um so do you think that as that happens the network will be the validators etc will be sufficiently incentivized or lp providers etc Mm. Yeah, um, it's a good question because I was uh, today talking, I'm, I'm in Lisbon and there was Atom Lisbon today talking to a few people and we had exactly this topic of tokenomics and for example, talking about the current uh, topics of there is no staking yield coming out of the Kodira side and is this a risk in terms of security already now because the validators are not making any kind of basically income, they're paying 
to validate the network at the moment. We all hope that change. That's why we're also validating. And then the other question is, how much yield do you need to give a validator? Because you can basically calculate it, right? I guess the validator on average needs between 250 up to 500 bucks a month in terms of infrastructure costs. What happens if validators earn less in commission than that threshold? Um, I think on most of the Cosmos chains right now, there's a, at least one third of the validators that uh, are always below the threshold. So they earn less money that they spend on infrastructure and they still stick around because of course they hope that first of all, the token price goes up, that changes everything immediately. Or the other pieces that they can just gain more and more traction and more and more stake over time so that they basically make enough money out of that. But um, we, we had exactly this discussion. So it's like, what I think Kujira is an amazing case to witness how long validators are eager to accept that they're running at a loss, which right now is doing everybody on chain uh, before it gets into a security issue. Because as you said, I think uh, in let's say quote unquote inflation, or I just say it basically, how do I call it? It's more like, it's part of a tokenomics that is, as you said, uh, to incentivize stakers, right? I don't have a better word for it. It's kind of it's, the, yeah, it's also the uh, the sort of distinction between what supply is entering circulating circulation or supply versus the future total supply and, and et cetera. So there's like different tranches of coins in different places you can imagine. And I think from a price action perspective for people to understand, it's like which coins are available to actually, you know, be in the market circulating to buy and sell available on exchanges to, to, to trade against. And that, that tends to be a majority of where the sort of like price action happens, um, where, where supply demand, point. yeah. Yeah, because for example, on uh, specifically if you compare now for Osmosis to Gojira, it's like both of them are not inflationary, right? They have this finite supply. And then basically why is the yield of Osmosis so high? Well, because they choose to allocate a big part of those tokenomics to incentives, which I personally like because it helps to decentralize the holders. Because you can now compare both sets and set who is holding all those tokens because both of them in a certain amount of time and Kujira earlier than Osmosis because Kujira I think almost in 12 months has the full, is fully diluted, who is holding it, right? And, and those are questions and that's why I personally tend to like high incentive uh, staking rewards because it just helps to extremely decentralize the holders of um, your chain, yeah. right? And, and I think uh, another, another way to analogy to think about this for everybody is, okay, would you rather have like a uh, hundred people uh, each have a million dollars, right? And then that's a hundred million dollar chain. Or would you rather have, you know, a, a million people uh, each have, you know, $10 for the same, you know, for, you know, or a or hundred dollars for a hundred million dollar chain. So the, the point is like, you want a highly distributed token distribution and a big, uh, in order to be decentralized so that any one person or group can't basically make uh, massive changes to the system um, because that's just kind of how these delegated uh, proof of stake networks work. So the, the distribution of your token supply is actually important and different systems incentivize decentralization and other types of systems incentivize more centralization, even in a token economic model. So that's another feature of all of this. A lot of people think the basics like, well, is price gonna go up or not, right? But they don't think about like, which mechanism actually will decentralize the most. Um, so yeah, these are important <laughs> because long-term, these are the things that uh, determine the viability of the chain. Uh, so I think it's, if you're a long-term, like quote unquote investor or something, like that's a different thinking. 
compared to if you're just trading short-term price action where many of these things may not matter in the very, very short term, right? Yeah, I think that's a good point that you say, and I understand this, right? It's like nobody likes to see token prices go down, but uh, in the kind of the short time frames, there are so many topics in terms of if we think of years that it probably doesn't matter. I had a very interesting conversation with somebody about the Stride token last week where I think it's just live for a few weeks, and they said Stride has a huge problem because it just dropped. I also think it's always funny because if a token goes live, there's almost no liquidity on the market. It's shallow liquidity. Of course, it can pump if just a few people um, go in there. Maybe some got an airdrop. Some Somebody wants to sell, as you say, Sefi, right? Even kind of a selling event can be short-term, also a price pump. If somebody also orchestrates that correctly, he can do it. And then it just looks like the token went down 80%. Yeah, the token is just, it just started on a day. It just spiked. That's not why the token really is down 80%. And then it takes now years to dilute the full tokenomics. So you just anyway need to draw down probably in price. I understand that it hurts if you unfortunately were the one buying at the top. But I think um, probably if you're long enough in this game, you just understand those mechanics that you always describe very well. And then I think it makes also more sense, right? That you need probably a downwards price development for some tokens if you want to achieve certain things like decentralization, which I would even take higher and more important than short-term price development. But I know that it's a very difficult yeah. topic and nobody wants to see prices go down. It's like if you think of almost every crypto uh, out there in a proof-of-stake style system, a vast majority will have a major pump on opening just because the news and excitement most recently was like Aptos, for example, and you know the price goes just vertical straight up. And um, you know, there's a significant number of people that will make substantial multiples of gains in that market, and they're going to sell, and then the price is going to get crushed, and it's going to find some bottom, um, and that bottom could be a good solid 95% or more <laughs> from the top. So uh, massive wreckage usually ensues. So if you're like trying to be serious about your money, you usually don't jump in on those things unless you just intend to play around with a little bit. You, you don't necessarily go, oh, look, uh, Aptos chain's opening up. I'm going to put my net worth in this thing. Uh, because even if the price goes above where you bought it, the probability that from the top, you're going to see oftentimes a you know, 90% retracement is very likely just because the, the price action of the upside is just simply ridiculous. So it's just it's immediate supply shock. And that's all it is, but it doesn't reflect like any kind of realistic, sustainable market cap. You saw Internet Computer and a lot of other coins do this kind of nonsense. So, yeah, th there's a lot of uh, study that's been done as far as what's a better fair launching system. Uh, people have done lock drops and other weird things to try to like make a more natural price discovery that doesn't wreck so many people. Um, so, yeah, that's there's a whole science behind that as well. Um, I was going to mention like there's also uh, different token distribution ideas, right? So when tokens are released uh, in the beginning, you'll have some that have, you know, a very high proportion of team tokens or, you know, the, the original builders of the blockchain have kept a lot of tokens for themselves and or they added a pile of tokens for venture capital firms to get in early. So they may be, you know, buying, you know, m most cryptos, if you're a VC firm, you know, you may easily make uh, a five to 10x just on the initial offering when the thing opens because they got the coins for like comparatively almost for free compared to compared to what you're paying for them uh you may be paying 100x more than they did so obviously some of those are going to sell and dump on you 
And then people have had vesting periods too, where like, okay, if you're a venture capital firm or some big firm, you get these tokens for early, but you've got to hold them for five years or 10 years or something like that. Uh, 10 years is probably like a better long-term uh, like alignment of incentives. I think Cadena blockchain is an example where they have like a 10 year or more. Uh, then there's other ones that are much shorter. And um, I think Solana is a notable example where like the price got absolutely crushed because so many, so many VC firms, who knows who uh, sold um, and, and dumped the thing. Um, so yeah, you have to look at that. An interesting thing, we talked about this before the crash of Terra actually, um, was that Terra Luna, the Terraform Labs wallet, I think was like around 55% or something. I think Guy, what's his name? The, the YouTube channel. Uh, what's, what's the guy's channel's name? Coin Bureau. Yeah, Coin Bureau. Yeah, he did, a, he did a nice discussion about that at one point where he sort of was like, you know, posting, you know, portraying the FUD of Luna, which was that, well, you know, his, his negativity towards it was that, well, he didn't buy too much of it because he's concerned that TFL owned too big of a size of the pool. So I think it was like 55% or something high. So why is that a problem? Because that supply, even if the, the, the team doesn't actually sell, right? There's this looming possibility that they could sell at some point in the future. And if they own half the tokens of the, uh, you know, that means that they can dilute a lot. And when, uh, in, in particular, the UST Luna mechanism, price discovery was largely happening on the coins that were actually in the market, but the the, the team tokens, the half of the half the tokens, were not actually participating in that supply. So as soon as you start to say, "Well, I'm going to sell some of this," it signals to the market number one that, "Hey, look, if they're starting to sell, only God knows how much they're going to sell." So whether it was Project Don or whether it was LFG or whatever the hell, there is once you start signaling to the market that, "Well, the team is thinking we should use this these funds." Then the venture capital firms will say, wait a minute, like, okay, like I'm going to dump before you do. And so people like Galaxy Digital, Mike Novogratz, and a bunch of other firms dumped their Luna. And um, I think part of it would be because they have to de-risk because they know that the team is selling as well. And, and so when you have these coins that have not participated in price discovery, they start entering the market. I started getting nervous. I was like, hey, wait a minute. Like, this is like, uh, so what they did to combat that was, I remember when they created LFG, which is like a fund to peg UST or whatever, they bought that Bitcoin and such, but they actually sold the Luna, their Luna, over the counter to firms like Three Arrows Capital and a bunch of other people who threw in like, I think a billion dollars, and they had to hold their tokens and have them vested over, I don't know how many years, I think it was like three years or so. I don't remember what that number was. Four years. Some, Four years. Okay, yeah, there you go. So there was a there was a there was like a vesting period. And the reason they did their vesting period was they did that so that people they they can't just dump immediately on you know upward price action and preventing from the coin from crashing. Now that actually got three arrows capital wrecked because when Luna crashed, they had a big sizable chunk of money stuck in Luna. But you know, having said that. These are, the, these are the problems when the team owns too much token. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm like, you know, with all these different models that we've just talked about and these different ideas and burn mechanisms and, um, you know, circulating supply and this, that, and the other thing, I've been thinking a lot about like, what would be the primo token that I would want to own if I could make one, like if I could create one with all of the features that I think I would want in it. Um, and I, I've been kind of dreaming up ideas in my head as far as like, what that would look like. 
what it would look like to me is number one, no team tokens, meaning there's no ownership by any centralized entity. I would create something with like no governance whatsoever. Like you'd be more of a Bitcoin. So there's been enough experimentation in crypto, in my opinion, that you could probably piece together a model that has looked upon the successes of lots of different projects out there in terms of like their ability to centralize, decentralize, and ultimately create a system where it, there is no governance, there is no modification, and it is a fixed um, system that once it's rolling, it's like credibly not going to change. You don't have weird unlocks of tokens. And the price discovery probably would have to be in some kind of lock drop format, like we've seen um, some, some uh, uh, protocols do, where you release the tokens in a price falling manner and the public just you know, gets to participate in free and open price discovery. And obviously, you'd have to have a system there to make sure that validators are taken care of with some sort of most likely inflationary model so that you have at least some inflation to continue to distribute coins, provide incentives, not to mention yield has a meme effect, not just the, uh, the fact that there's yield, but people tend to like this idea of kind of getting some returns on these coins. That way, even if they have like staked coins, they have some coins emerging, they can spend those coins for something. They can maybe use it on that network. They could buy NFTs, whatever the heck it is. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, but there's a lot of different thoughts I've had as far as like how to create such a system. And I use that thinking when I'm like considering coins that I want to buy and how much and, you know, how much I want to stake with who. I think about what would the perfect coin look like and do I want to own that? And I was, I was really hoping at one point that uh, assuming that we didn't have a DPEG event, that, that Luna's tokenomics was the most interesting at the time because you had a revenue model, which is essentially the minting of UST would burn Luna so that was a there was a shared incentive there's a shared mechanism there that had a credible deflationary model. I haven't seen um a very good uh burn model um since then because there aren't that many internet native products that people want. I think probably uh like an internet native system that doesn't need external verification might end up being like machine learning AI based um, services that you pay for in a crypto. And maybe you could do a revenue system where that like you buying AI services of some kind for some practical purposes or computational power, you could then use the revenue from that to burn a coin. So like a, almost like a constant stock buyback. But outside of that, like it has to be some computer native, internet native thing, because as soon as you start talking about services and goods in the real world, or whatever in a non-computational way, like the problem is you wind up having to have lots of verification services and legalities and other nonsense. So it has to be sort of like a internet native, um, sort of like deflationary coin would probably pose the best tokenomics um, that you could possibly achieve. And um, so it'd be like the mixture of every possible value accrual mechanism you can imagine. Just make a big list and then figure out, okay, how do we incorporate all these value accrual mechanisms into our blockchain and our like products and services. I do like, um, by the way, Cosmos's app chain systems. Uh, like if you don't know how that works, instead of having a layer one uh, solution, like for example, Ethereum, and then you build lots of things on top of it, the app chain thesis is, well, you know, the tokenomics for each particular project, whether it's a centralized project, um, whether it's a decentralized project, whether it's um, uh, like, whether it's an exchange or a, like a, 
a service provider like DVPN or something like that, different types of systems require different tokenomics and incentive mechanisms. So depending on what you're trying to incentivize, you can tailor make that, and then you don't have to pay rent to another chain. So you don't have to forego some of your profitability or your power in a sense. And I think the sovereign governance model um, does make sense. So like if osmosis you know, feels like, hey, uh, we're a DEX, you know, we only are a DEX, and our tokenomics favors like, you know, being a DEX, and we don't have any other rent we have to pay to any other chain to survive. Like, for example, if you're on, um, I don't know, Polygon and you're living on Ethereum or something like that. Um, so without having these additional rent-seeking situations, you create the possibility for the most profitable um, single-use chains, and those tokenomics can be tailor-made for that particular chain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like when I'm looking at some uh, issues right now, like one of them is the Luna Classic chain. The problem that we see there is, or I see there, is that right now there's not a cohesive vision of what the actual chain is for. So if you don't have a vision for what it's for first, designing the tokenomics, like whether it's like burn mechanism, whether it's a you know, transaction fee mechanism or fixed supply or inflationary or whatever, like you can't, you know, like you, you can't sort that out until you figure out what you're trying to incentivize. So if you're, tra you're trying to incentivize absolute decentralization, for example, that's one sort of like um, uh, outcome. If you're trying to incentivize um, people holding the coin as a store of value, like a Bitcoin, that's a different outcome. If you're wanting people to spend that coin to buy stuff like NFTs or some other things on your chain, that's a slightly different thing, right? If you do a burn tax, for example, 1.2% burn tax, um, yeah, you're going to make the thing deflationary in a sense, but you also have no way to pay the validators with that mechanism. And additionally, you don't have, um, like, you, you don't incentivize lots of trading. In fact, it's the other way around. If, if 10 trades are going to make me lose 10% of my money or more, like, why would I initiate 10 trades? I'm not, right? So bot traders, uh, grid traders, um, high-frequency quantitative traders, and all these kind of things won't happen on that chain. And if you know anything about blockchain, the number one use of blockchain, 95% of attractions are people trading. It's not like people are buying like Big Macs or something with their, <laughs> with their, uh, with their crypto right now. So I think if you're going to be a general purpose layer one, you must make money on trading and transaction fees, at least part of it. Um, but even that, like most blockchains cannot make enough money just on transaction fees alone, especially if the fees are low, like they're in Cosmos chains. So that's why the validators are paid with inflationary rewards. So even Luna Classic as an example, I think at a nominal should have a some sort of inflationary reward, maybe like three to five percent that goes to validators. So you know for sure the validators are paid. And then if you can stack on additional kind of neat things like burn mechanisms, whatever using the transactions on the network or a value accrual mechanism, certainly you're free to do so. But I think if you don't get the validators paid first, you're just going to uh, burn your community pool away in 18 months or whatever that is. And then you don't have any money to work with. Um, and then uh, like, you know, then what? You still have to solve the problem of paying the validators. And then, you know, and a burn mechanism doesn't necessarily do that. So I think you have to have uh, like an incentivization for transactions. You have to, um, have incentivization for uh, holding the co uh, coin. Um, and uh, all of these things have to happen sort of simultaneously. Um, 
But, uh, you know, is there a perfect coin? Probably not. I don't know that there's a perfect one. Um, even Bitcoin, for example, you could be a hardcore Bitcoin maxi. But it, there were trade-offs made in its design. Um, it's not like 100% perfect in every single way. Um, there, but there I think are a that lot can of, also not be perfect, right? In terms of yeah. it's a discovery, right? And in the meantime, we know more stuff and we understand better use cases. So probably it has to change what was perfect back then. Is not perfect anymore. And you, I mean, both of us, we are big Bitcoin fans, right? And as you said, what is the perfect tokenomics? Bitcoin is hyperinflationary or has been always. It still is, right? In terms of that there's a lot of Bitcoin hitting every day the market. And it still worked, right? And because they just wanted to decentralize. So it's like, I guess uh, tokenomics just can be judged in like two or three years after a while when you see that stuff is happening. And then it works. Um, and then specifically with the validators, what you are right now talking about, which, yeah, I mean, I feel the pain. My stuff is not easy. It's like it's so much is also attached more to the token price than to the true yield itself. Because, um, for example, if we talk about APRs and APYs on an LP pool, it's usually expressed in dollar, which is driven by the token price. But if we talk about yield in terms of single-sided staking, it's expressed in total amount of tokens that are truly uh, getting to you, right? So this amount doesn't change. That's why you see that, for example, Osmosis and Juno, in terms of staking yield, they just go down, uh, well, tending to zero long-term because they just every day, there are less tokens to distribute and more stakers. So that's why it's also kind of a two-sided topic, which I don't think that we have also a word to describe this, kind of dollar-driven yield and uh, token-driven yield or absolute yield. But that's kind of also a big Yeah, it's like an absolute versus relative yield. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Mathematically, yeah. And I think a lot of people that see these numbers, right, they're, they're not advertised in a way that clarifies these nuances. Like when you look at the yield, it, it doesn't say, you know, there's not a table that has all these different components in it and go, okay, these are the, like, so it's hard to compare apples to apples when it comes to any kind of uh yeah when people say do your own research it's interesting it's 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 hard to go to a singular place and compare these i know like stakingrewards.com is an example of a website that tries to sort of delineate some of this but even that is not really really obvious you just see the staking apy and it tries to predict for you like you know how much you're going to make if you hold this thing for a year or whatever it tends to do the dollar value not necessarily the token value um or the number of tokens you're going to have and that's because people tend to think in dollars, not in their in the in the token itself, and all these kinds of things. People tend to still gauge their profitability in dollars. Um, some people isn't that funny? That yeah, we basically started all of this to get away from that, and uh, everybody is still focusing only on that to express success. Uh, it's somehow contradicting, and even a successful, let's say, decentralized tokenomics is then destroyed because they said, yeah, but in dollar values, we are now lower than before. Yeah, dude, I mean, sure. <laughs> Maybe it has a different goal, but uh, good point. <laughs> yeah, and it's also because the the some of the things actually get paid for in actual real-world dollars. Like take, for example, Akash, which is AKT. It's one of the Cosmos chains. It is the funding mechanism and the coin used to pay for cloud services and um, using that Akash network, which allows you to basically have like kind of like a decentralized um, Kubernetes cluster running or whatever to run, you know, a website or something like that. And anyway, long story short, like the, 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 the thing is the you may be paying in Akash tokens for the particular service, but the service is actually paying somebody else, whether it's Amazon Cloud or some other, you know, service provider, they're paying in dollars. So if the price of Akash tokens goes down, 
the cost of the actual like you know service that they're providing might actually have to go up in token terms because in dollar terms that's what they're really paying for their expenses side of the equation so this is the thing like people are still buying and selling and, and evaluating a much of what they're doing in euros dollars and other major currencies and um so yeah like in their mind their return on investment or profitability profitability is certainly measured in those those currencies even for gold for that matter no one is like um no one is measuring you know their value of something in ounces of gold they they prefer sort of a stable uh stable coin so to speak like a dollar or a euro or something like that as their um their you know as their sort of metric for success in terms of return on investment because that's what they're buying their real world shit with like like if you have your token price go down 97 percent and you go to mcdonald's and you're going to go buy a burger or something like you now can buy like 97 percent less burgers in real world terms so that's kind of why we end up having that concept yeah the world where like one bitcoin equals one bitcoin and no one actually compares it to anything else is a very different world where like it becomes the dominant say currency of the world or something along those lines but we have a ways to go for something like that in theory um but uh and another interesting point of all this is uh the centralization decentralization argument by the way tokenomics has a role there but also what was discovered after Bitcoin was that it's really, really hard to organically create decentralization. Like, what do I mean by this? Um, okay, look at living organisms today. Um, it started with probably like little bacteria or algae or something like that in oceans, you know, uh, you know things like chlorophyll, you know, came about and then, you know, plants could take energy from the sun and you have all these little neat little creatures in the ocean. And even before like multicellular organisms, um, you know, you had these single cell creatures all over the place. And it was a very, very kind of decentralized world. And slowly you got to the point where these things coalesced into larger organs and then larger organisms like uh, little, you know, whatever worms and, you know, uh, uh, fungi and all the other neat little things that roam around the earth. And then eventually you get, you know, larger organisms like vertebrates and mammals you know, with yeah, human beings sort of at the, the apex of the cognitive ladder at this point. And um, so in the beginning, there was decentralization, essentially. And centralization came as an emergent phenomenon um, of living systems, right? When we are sentient creatures and we're trying to cause a decentralized system to emerge, it would be not that different than just like kind of like trying to figure out how to take a planet, say the moon, or I'm mean, sorry, a moon or a planet, like you, or like Mars or something like that. And you go and you try to like spur life on that planet. How would you go do it? Are you going to go put humans there first? Are you going to spread bacteria there first? So if you go and you put humans there first, you can almost be sure that it's going to be hyper centralized in power structure. It's going to be super centralized to the needs of human beings. And um, those needs may be very short term thinking in that like, you may not have an ecosystem there to save you if even the smallest problem happened, right? Like you just don't have trees there. You don't have water there. You don't have, you know, little uh, chickens to eat or whatever it is you're going to have there. So it becomes a much harder thing when you start with centralization. In blockchain, what happened was with Bitcoin, you sort of got decentralization somewhat by luck because a lot of people that were mining Bitcoin early on were doing it on their different laptops and people were running nodes on all sorts of little you know, basic computers. You didn't have to have ASICs at the time. And you had sufficient enough sort of 
a number of different people that were mining and a distribution of the token supply and everything else that somehow or another we got to, I think Bitcoin remains probably the highest Nakamoto coefficient, which is a, 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 a math term that essentially says, how decentralized is your network really? Um, and then uh, with proof of stake networks, your problem that you seem to have is the largest validators, like let's say the top 10, tend to be way too powerful compared to the, 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 the last you know, 10% of your validators. And nobody's ever found a way to solve this problem. There's different reasons for this. Um, one is that there's nothing preventing someone from putting a whole lot of money in, uh, say, for example, a Coinbase or a Binance or something, and starting a validator. So because it's decentralized, it doesn't prevent very rich people from like entering the market. I don't care which blockchain you have right now. If it's an open validator network, you like I could come in and I could basically become the dominant player if I bring enough money in, right? I don't care how community you think you are, anything. It doesn't make any difference. Like if it's cheap enough and I can buy enough of the network, then I might be induced to do so. So that's one thing. The other thing is when you are staking with validators, the problem comes in, you're like, wait a minute, who is this smaller validator? Are they going to be, is their uptime going to be good? Am I going to get slashed? I don't know. So what happens is the amount of research that has to be done to understand what's a good validator is like, you know, it's, it's a point of friction for people. So you don't really know what, what button to click. So people tend to pick the top stuff. Um, it's very similar to how, like, you know, you go to the store and you're like, you don't buy like the seventh tier shoes. Maybe you might go buy Nike or Adidas or something like that, because you figure, well, these brands are probably going to make me a half decent shoe. So I have a tenant. There's a tendency for larger companies to get bigger, whether it's Apple, whether it's Nike or whoever. And the reason for that is like trust. People tend to trust things. Uh, it's branding, it's marketing um, and all of those components. And um, with proof of stake networks, nobody's really tr truly figured out how to solve this problem of validator centralization. Like there's no mathematics that has worked so far. I have some intuition about this. Like I've been thinking about this a lot. And I've been looking at sort of like some of this biomechanics stuff that Ethan Buckman gave me. And I think like some of the things that need, need to happen for decentralization to occur, I don't think human beings are ready to accept it to some extent. Like, for example, um, like if a hurricane were to come in and wipe out part of Florida, right, you don't really have any control over it. And if you could, you'd stop that hurricane. But when you do all that destruction, right, you decentralize the money, you, you destroy some properties, some people leave, new people come in, and you, you create sort of like this credible risk of destruction to prevent megacities from forming on Florida, right? Because if you build too big, well, what if the hurricane comes in, class five hurricane knocks the thing over? So the, the threat of like natural uh, sort of dissipation of entropy and the destruction of large swaths of your civilization tends to favor like this idea of not getting too centralized to some extent like for example there's a limit to how big like the buildings in san francisco get because there's a true risk of earthquakes there or like you know maybe you're on uh i don't know seattle or portland and you're on the cascadia fault and if that fucker breaks you know like the entire city is going to fall down with the biggest earthquake known to man so there is a limit to how much you're going to build there perhaps right so natural disasters like are something that Ethan describes in one of his talks. And he talks about kind of how like, you know, you have to dissipate entropy. Um, but interestingly, during those times, like hurricanes and uh, whatever, like tsunamis and things of that nature, it's a very structured object 
these natural phenomenon, but they're highly entropic in terms of like, they look, they look pretty. In other words, they're like, there's a, almost a physical structure to the release of entropy, but then it dissipates a lot of energy at a sudden period of time. In blockchain, my suspicion is for proof of stake networks, we need to have like earthquakes, tornadoes, and other natural disasters. Right now, that is basically financial disasters. Like for example, if you look at traditional finance, you look at Lehman Brothers, you look at the subprime lending crisis, you look at every one of these sort of situations where human beings thought they could control the system, but instead what happened is the size and magnitude of the crash was even bigger, right? Whether it's interest rate controls, Federal Reserve, you name it, right? All the things that you think of wrong with the monetary system is that human beings believe we can prevent hurricanes. Human beings believe we can prevent meteor strikes. We believe we can like, you know, control nature to some extent. And we try, that's sort of the whole point of life actually is to sort of like triumph over, you know, your niche, so to speak. That's how evolution works. But if you look at blockchain systems, like we had Terra collapse, right? We had bridge hacks with Harmony One, you know, collapsing more or less. We had all sorts of events happen. And they happened not necessarily because the blockchain was designed poorly, but an inability to sort of like dissipate entropy in a timely manner before a massive crash could occur, right? So, um, so how can you potentially design a system to have the um, sort of like destructive properties built in? And would anyone actually invest in it? That's a different question. Like, what if you knew? The, the question is, but, but the question is for whom? Right. Right. Um, so what, what I mean because is, for Dr. example, let's the, say, for example, if, you're, if your yeah. validator got too big, right, is there a higher risk for a large validator than a small one at this point? Not really. Right. So if you. It, it, but you could, you could, for example, so what is the risk of for the validator itself is to lose delegators, right? So you could, for example, say if the validator gets too big, he randomly gets people uh, delegating to somebody else, right? So automatically you get, I don't know, redelegated with a piece of your stake. That's a disaster for the validator. I think it's, <laughs> it has to be even more ones. than that, Danko. I think what has to happen is, is that there has to be a risk of your funds actually being destroyed from time to time, a true hurricane. See, it's not, good. Oh, it's not, cool. it's, yeah, nobody agree. likes that because nobody likes to lose money, but nobody likes to lose money in hurricanes or pandemics or anything either. There's a certain effect that destruction has on decentralization that cannot be replicated by any other method. Like there's just no, there's no great way to perfectly replicate it. Maybe we will, like maybe for example, like massive numbers of machine learning systems are going to be so like computationally decentralized that if somehow or another you could like derive value from like those kinds of systems, maybe we'll have a new system. But at least in like proof of stake blockchains, I can't think of one that doesn't involve like somehow punishing the largest from time to time, not because I'm some sort of communist or whatever, and I believe in like redistribution of wealth or something. I'm just saying like from the perspective of like dissipation, allowing entropy to sort of take its course before it does so in a violent way, right? Like the violent way is you have a bunch of centralized funds, whether it's a bridge, whether you have like, you know, some other, um, you know, problem, like for example, extreme centralization where people, some group of people take over the network, for example. Um, you could do things like uh, punish the largest folks, but you also then suffer from Sybil attacks and things, which is where people say, well, if, if you're going to punish me for having one validator, then Coinbase will go open up 50 validators instead. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but I think there are right now just two nice examples following up on that. It's like number one, 
Uh, you said the disasters crash. Um, while Terra was a disaster, and I think for a lot of people that are just in here and listening, and for for you and me, of course, Terra Two is one of the most decentralized chains in terms of stake because just everybody that was entitled to get tokens based on the old chain just now got tokens on the new chain, and every validator just got two million in stake, uh, which is just I mean yeah. that's exactly the case of the chain was running for a long time, and there was exactly. a disaster event, and then disaster. it was redistributed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and what. And then a second piece that I just wanted to add here, and I, as I said, I don't want to spread here any negativity against, but Cosmos Station themselves, because they're right now dominating most of the Cosmos chains um, at the moment, specifically Atom, right? And they voted no with veto on Proposal 82, and I think it got a lot of attention. They themselves said that, um, that they, for example, would like to start working on decentralizing more and more their own stake. And what they decided to do now is that they seem to be increasing now their own commission step by step, and they expect that people will then redelegate. What I assume will be happening is that they already earn a ton of money and they will now earn way more on top of that because nobody who has delegated is keeping track of if the commission goes up and down. Yes, probably a lot of people listening here that are checking, that are interested, but most of the people, I still see it on our own data, it's like delegate once, forget forever. Right, so this yeah. will be one of the interesting cases. One of the big um, validators, which is already earning a lot of money, I think they will just double the amount that they're earning right now because nobody pays attention to this. Yeah, the validator situation becomes kind of a Game of Thrones story in, in the end. When the, when the size gets big enough, right? Like, let's say you have a hundred billion dollar chain, um, the, the the importance of your control of the network increases substantially uh, to make sure that it's driven in the way that you, as a validator, believe it should go. And um, so, yeah, at small scale, nobody cares about these things. At large scale, people said, wait, why don't, why does anyone notice this could happen? When, like nobody predicted this, these outcomes can happen and people whine afterwards. But yeah, I do like, by the way, on Luna uh, Terra 2 or whatever, like the, the beauty of that is that actually it's a fairly distributed uh, system now. Um, it's actually, uh, yeah, much more decentralized because TFL sort of didn't take a, a cut or whatever. And um so yeah, even with the sort of negativity around maybe like token vesting over the next year, which will l- result in some selling pressure, once that is completed, and actually that'll help decentralization even more actually, if some of the big people actually sell and get out, which is fine. And um, yeah, so the long run, actually Terra V2 has a substantial future ahead of it because it's actually more decentralized in many ways in token distribution than most other blockchains um, out there because of the way that this happened. So yeah, destruction actually can be a good thing uh, in that regard. Not to say that like it's fun being a, a part of the destruction. Who wants to be in a hurricane when their house gets blown to bits, right? But at the same time, there's a natural sort of like there's some natural features of like a forest fire that end up creating um, sort of like interesting new level playing field, so to speak. Um, it's weird how like a lot of people think that like the the Terra V2 blockchain um, you know, is not necessarily like a community style chain, but it really is. It actually has the, some of the best uh, distribution in that regard, which, uh, which, so there's a lot of promise there in a sense. Um, Donko, I was kind of like, <laughs> some phone calls were hitting me. So if you, if you hear me, like if I stick my hand up, it means I'm sort of AFK for a minute. You can kind of chat about some things or whatever, but um, yeah, any other thoughts? Uh, I think uh, Ryan uh, maybe hopped up, had a question or something. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, Sefi. Um, yeah, I'm right on the same page with you as far as natural disasters being a kind of a good, healthy part of the whole ecosystem. 
And it reminds me a lot about kind of with um, Luna. Um, as we experienced Luna kind of going up, um, there were times where it dropped and everyone kind of got liquidated and stuff like that. So you talk about a way to kind of program a way to kind of have natural disasters. My first thought is leverage. Wouldn't leverage kind of be that natural disaster that everyone can play with? And I meant this not so much in terms of just the price action and such. I was really intending to say that there is this tendency towards validator centralization if you look at what percentage voting power. And I don't think that solves that necessarily. Um, and there may be a way to incorporate some of those things into it, but it just makes me wonder, like, okay, how do you even program in natural disasters? Say, for example, I don't know if you played the video game SimCity or something like that, where periodically, like a, like a, I don't know, like a dinosaur romps through your city and blows up half your shit, or like you know, you have a tornado hit the city. Um, some sort of like programmed um, destruction, you know, even if it meant you lose some of your coins, right? Like, like what if you delegate with certain validator and a random event happens and you know you have some of your funds lost would that change the way you delegate or something like that um i guess becomes a question mark and i I don't know i think something like that some sort of like almost think of it as a video game where you have to have some sort of programmatic um decentralization tools that maybe let's say for example let's say there's like donku mentioned earlier let's say there's 200 validators and um you have like a score in the sense that like many of like, let's say Donku's validator has been doing really well. It hasn't been slashed in a very long time, has a good score or something in the background, the system's keeping score. And then there's this tendency for, um, let's say a disaster were to happen to one of the other validators, maybe delegations get distributed to other successful uh, validators. The, the problem with this is validators also currently in the cosmos ecosystem can also vote. And the thing is like, you know, you may wind up having, um, you may have delegated to one particular validator because you like what they contribute, you like how they vote, and now you're giving your vote away to someone else. It'd be like if periodically, like one political party's members were to take their vote and just vote the other party just because, not because of any particular rational reason. So this is the other problem is that governance has been tied to uh, the financial security of the network, and I'm not entirely sure that's the correct thing to do. Um, so there are some chains and projects that have actually separated the governance tokens from the financial security tokens, which is also interesting. I don't know. And, and but, also to add there, yeah. um, first of all, I agree with you, Sefi. Um, personally, I have a bit of an issue to see validators right now as uh, political parties, which I don't like. Um, I think we need to talk more about this topic because ultimately it's also, also not fair to expect from them to be a political party because you can always overrule the decisions of the validator. And that's what is expected from every staker, but let's be honest, stakers usually, they want the yield probably, they have tokens, they don't even care about governance, which is also fine, right? It's just like, you cannot be an expert everywhere. And I mean, we are right now on 14 mainnets with our validators and yeah, thank you to everybody delegating. Uh, so it's like crazy how much governance votes you have during a week. It's like, we, we have every day a vote, we need to read through it, we need to go to the Discord, understand what this is all about, vote. So you, you now run a things. think tank, Danku. It is. I mean, it because is, you it you is. can't even do it yourself at this point. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a team uh, of people that have to decide. Wait, what are we going to vote for? 
that's how we do it. So we have a Slack channel. Um, we have a bot who takes um, all the different votes that appear on chain. It's sent to a Slack channel, and then we vote with emojis. Uh, we are six people in there, uh, and then we basically get a sentiment. If nobody is no with veto, we don't talk about this. It's usually yes, no, abstain. And then we make a vote on that. And there are a lot of, let's say, governance decisions that are even not relevant. For example, Osmosis has every other day an adjustment of the incentive scheme where it's like, okay, they just changed 0.1% of a pool that nobody uses, but that needs a new governance proposal. It's like, come on. <laughs> and they want to change it, like, but there is a ton happening. Kujira is also adjusting a lot because they have just two days of voting period. Two days, it's like, what do you expect from the validators? They are right now not getting any money even to pay for the infrastructure. And you now expect from them to invest hours to understand what's happening on the governance side. That also needs to get paid, which people forget, right? It's just, yeah, they just need 250 bucks for infrastructure. Yeah, okay. And what is with the hours that they spend to understand governance? Nobody talks about this. And I think that's um, that's a big problem um, as a whole. And yeah, I don't know. Probably will this never is, be tackled. This, yeah. this is why also like Jay Kwan's proposal, he kind of put a proposal up on the Cosmos for Adam One. And his thoughts are exactly sort of this idea that basically governance is really hard. And at least your base layer um, primary coin of the network, like if everyone's going to use Atom as a liquidity uh, like coin, then it should have relative immutability and probably should not be changed at all. Like maybe you shouldn't even use it for anything. Don't use Cosmos Hub for literally anything. Make it like the Bitcoin of the Cosmos network. Work purely to decentralize it, but do not do anything like add any features or anything to it because then you create problems with the core liquidity token of your network. And if an upgrade or a bug happens and you know your Atom token were to crash or be drained or exploited or something, then you wind up with a different set of problems, which is you crash like multiple LPs across all over the cosmos and just cause chaos. And so his thought was like any changes would be essentially a hard fork and you'd create some other new token. Like he, rec you know, he thought of something like the photon token, he named it and said, you know, this would be a different function. So maybe you're, 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 you know, so there may be different functions of money. Maybe you separate your store of value, your currency and your uh, other components, right? Your utility pieces, you separate them into different parts so that you don't crash the whole network if a problem happens. So I understand like what his uh, side of the story is. And uh, he does have, despite the fact that, you know, we have some like he's kind of got some wild um, ideologies and stuff outside of crypto. The, his 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 intuitions about this problem aren't entirely to be ignored. Yeah, and I think it's a good point because um, right now, I mean, there's always the fight between the ETH and the Bitcoin maximalists, right? But it's like the the one probably tries to be money, the other one is more like uh, a big uh, internet computer, whatever. So it's like the tokenomics are also different because they want to achieve different stuff, right? I would never see yeah. ETH as money, what they say sound money. No, I don't want to, I don't even care about that. It's representing something else. But what I wanted to say earlier also in terms of uh, distribution of the set, it's like um, now having run for several months, I think we are live since Terra in March or so when we went live with our validator node. It's like, I don't see a problem also if there are certain validators that have a little bit more stake than others because um, the the amount of money that people put in to run a high level infrastructure or have it called like professional infrastructure is also different, right? There are others that just don't invest too much and you don't see it usually because the chain runs good. But then in terms of when you have high load, like when Terra crashed, you saw it, which of the validators were prepared for that? 
and we're running through it 100% because they had good infrastructure and others that don't because they didn't have the good infrastructure. They had no monitoring system in place. So I don't think that there's a problem. It doesn't need to be super equal. There can be a difference, but I think what we need to do is we need to be better in explaining what are even the differences, right? What does it even mean to be a validator? How much, yeah, for example, we moved now our set completely to Austria. We are now the first one who is uh, on a, in Austria as a validator with the infrastructure. And for that, we want to help to geographically decentralize also the Cosmos space. And that's stuff that people cannot do research on. It's way too difficult. And I guess we need to find ways like on MinScan to exactly show, right? Okay, is this in a country run that is not used too much right now on this specific chain? Is he running on bare metal or is it an online provider like now Google for Solana, which I think is also uh, not good news, right? Is he usually voting uh, on different governance proposals? How much, um, I don't know, memory space does his disk run right now on because uh, is he already almost at 100% even if the chain is not under pressure? Those kind of stuff. And I understand that a normal staker doesn't really care about, but we need to make way more to make it obvious. And then maybe also put anything in place, as you said, additionally incentivizing people that care more about it than others, because yeah, it's, it's not that straightforward, but as I said, it's, we are do also a very yeah. shitty job in general. I think a, sure. a way to look at this mentally is there's a lot of different things that need to be incentivized in a token economic model, right? It's not just, well, price go up or whatever. And, um, I think if you've been listening for the past uh, hour or so, you realize, wait, there's a lot of different nuances to this. But Nick, yeah, go ahead, man. Were you bringing up uh, the necessity for natural disasters because it's an emergent uh, property of Adam 2.0? No, I'm bringing up natural disasters because I think we probably should create them as a programmatic feature uh, in the sense that we don't have enough like entropy release like Ethan described in the current system. Like the only way that you can sort of avoid a problem right now might be to, you know, let's say you get lots of different coins and lots of different networks. You sort of diversify a little bit. You're There's still not a way to avoid an entropy. Entropy is constant. It's always moving. No, no, no. Avoid it as in like you programmatically cause. So in, in biology, an example would be like, you know, programmatic cell death, right? Like Organisms have a lifespan, and some of that's programmed within our cells because evolutionarily it's advantageous for you know you to die after a certain period of time. So, so um, and then so you're talking about reasons. like how do you get the illiquid uh, assets on SIF chain off? Like that, I could see that being like a yeah. programmed cell death type type deal. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, that that exactly. I think it's also happened. good. There's a saying in English like uh, "nature is healing." which exactly is uh, talking about this, right? Something went completely wrong. And then you give it again time to start over again, which is then nature is healing. And it's funny because somebody earlier said, isn't that leverage? And that is, I think, also partly seen in crypto that you over leverage, uh, it's moving upwards and then nature is healing. It's just completely crashed. And then it, there's a redistribution and, and it starts over again and you have way more better represented price. Yeah, it's interesting, but it doesn't help us with the stake, right? <laughs> but but <laughs> Nick, what I was thinking stuff. of is, is it possible to design in the tsunamis, tornadoes and hurricanes to literally destroy shit from time to time? <laughs> like nobody's going to like it if you have a possibility of like everyone wants their number go up. They want inflationary rewards. They want their um, value of their token to go up. Uh, they don't want the price to go down, obviously, but maybe the right thing is there has to be some sort of like uh, programmatic randomness in sense. You, you, you incorporate mm -hmm. entropy into the system and actually cause a decimation event to occur from time to time. 
on I purpose. I know it can... sounds really weird, but like it's the only way I can think of to prevent centralization problems. I don't think that you can ha- do something on purpose and have it be random. Like uh, random is the only way to make it fair, or else it's like you're at every once in a while you're like, I don't like you. Yeah, like take for example, Nick. Like maybe things should happen. Like for example, the yield rates of inflationary coins should truly change with a randomizer of some kind and not always be purely tied to like a a measurable piece of the network because that way like you have to create some degree of unpredictability so that people can't just simply plan for all that's not what an investment tool is right it's like you you don't want you don't want like a sybil attack to happen because everything you set up is completely preventable i mean it's anytime something is completely predictable you will have a game theory that will simply say that like those predictable things will be gamed in one form or fashion to gain maximum advantage. Right. So how know, do you it's like saying yeah. I, sometimes I put a crescent wrench in my sock drawer just to mix. So like it, I don't understand what the, what's the, just to mix up randomly. I mean, it takes energy. So you're saying have a mechanism. So every entropy is, uh, bound through an energetic process, like it takes takes energy to keep things from becoming disordered. Uh, right. I don't know why you would put energy into purposefully randomly disordering something so that you can put additional energy into reorganizing it. the The core reason would be that the because the creation of because decentralization people, yeah exactly it cannot be accomplished through any central mechanism that we can identify known to man so far this is so why what makes you think it should be because all centralized systems always die so like the, the question is like do you want the but did it live well i don't know not necessarily it, it yeah whether it lived well or not is a different thing entirely but what i'm saying is like if you want a system with um sort of like baked in uh like uh, stress tests in a sense and stressors you want to make it gambling all the time yes exactly so for example if you go out to go surfing today right you may catch a good wave you could maybe even check the weather and improve your odds of getting a good wave you could go out to a surf competition though and there's no guarantee that just because you go out there you're going to catch a great wave um, so there is an element of sort of like, art, you know, randomness within the competition and the competition doesn't try to eliminate those features of the, the, the thing, right? It's not like, oh, yeah, you didn't all, wave that's, today. That's all based on the, the idea that there's some constant and that's that there's going to be waves out there of, of some sort. Right. Or else you wouldn't go out there at all. So if there's not that same, con- if you're trying to mix up even the the constants like what draws people to the stream is fish if you just if if you were able to pick up the stream and move it people would go back there and not have any fish i, I don't see how that's a an effective I, way to I like to try explaining because you guys are talking about entropy and the best way to explain what in a algorithmic state of uh, computer uh, physics is thinking of a measure of theory and using the conditional entropy as an X and a Y basis in the algorithm for your computer input. So when you do tokenomics and, and so forth, trying to create 
uh, a variable based off of the entropy, the the idea is the same as the entanglement staff measurement within music theory. Um, that's to the the wave theory of music, where you basically have one segment, but in in its essence, you have a quantum basis of breaking up each variable in its different states to transfer. You can actually, the theory has been stated for um, um, be able to capsulate within the air, within radio waves, microwaves, and so forth. So the idea of entropy is to break up things into a smaller bite uh, mechanism into a qubit and be able to. And yeah, uh, and, and you're bringing up like not just the issue of entropy, but also there's an issue of like the 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 unpredictability of the the future state and using that as a measure a method to sort of like you know, create um algorithmic sort of decentralization of some kind or the other i haven't figured out exactly what the the rat how to do this precisely by the way i'm just sort of like talking out loud because the sybil attack is the is the standard problem of if you were to uh penalize validators from being too big right what are what is a coin like look at coinbase on um like uh the coinbase validator on the cosmos hub right now it's really big it has too much voting power if they choose to vote they can outvote like the other you know i don't know what it is like 50 percent of validators or something in, in one vote right this is the problem so the solution for that would be what in theory you could say okay well nobody can have a validator beyond a certain size uh, that would be one possibility but then the, what, what does that mean we're going to go give the money in that Coinbase validator who may be doing a good job to a bunch of validators who don't do a good job on purpose. So like a socialist split kind of themselves thing. into three. Right. So or they're going to split themselves into three and do kind of a civil type of thing where or maybe they'll split themselves into 50, right? Like what if you right, punish, right. you know, punish large validators for some reason, they're going to come with a game theory to sort of like, you know, avoid that because they're going to look after their own interests. Um, and uh, you know, like this idea, like where the Donku's talking about, which is like this philosophical idea that, well, we should talk about like like working on a system to decentralize things manually somehow, maybe uh, encourage people to uh, uh, vote one way or, or delegate one way. That has not really worked in any meaningful way. Like, I don't know how many chains have achieved that exactly, where, right, where, where the people chose decentralization over the convenience of centralization. I, I haven't I think seen it's it. because we're too early. Like, there's too much risk to where you don't have, like, uh, if, if everyone knew that 10 years from now, Adam or whatever chain was going to be worked on consistently and successful, there, there would be far less of this argument. Uh... Well, I don't know. Like if you look at uh, cloud networks as another example of the same thing, right, which basically work on digital value, Google, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, those but they are, don't have those to have become... overcome... Yeah, uh, disclosure. All of those have become more centralized, as have the uh, main providers of like software, um, like such as you know Microsoft, Apple, etc. Platforms such as Android, um, iOS, etc. Most examples in human tech have proceeded to increasing centralization, less and like more and more like duopolies, triopolies. Um, it's the natural state of like sentient humans to form centralized entities to solve certain problems and efficiencies, which is great, but that also creates like single points of failure in case something really bad happens. And I think with the blockchain world, if you like believe in sort of like decentralization, that's, uh, there's different levels of it. There's token holder decentralization, there's validator decentralization, there's 
decentralization by having millions of chains, right? Like that's another way to do it, by the way. Maybe the right answer is we just let all the chains be centralized. Who cares? But you have a hundred different chains available that you can invest in. So that's another way decentralization happens, right? If you go to your local city, you probably have lots of different little restaurants. You have some of them that are McDonald's or chains. Some of them are like little mom and pop places. And the whole, the whole actually works fine because people are okay with going to the so-called decentralized restaurants so that you don't have like McDonald's fail one day and every, nobody eats after that, right? Like, although in agriculture, uh, like if you look at the United States, like ConAgra and um, some of the other major uh, agriculture firms, like two or three companies own like practically, you know, Archer Daniels Midland, for example, like two or three companies own like the entirety of the, the agricultural network of the United States. So pretty, like human beings, like, typically tend to move towards centralization. And my thought is like some sort of, uh, and to prevent that from happening, people have tried shit like, you know, antitrust laws and all the other neat things, right? But those things only work to a certain extent because the public actually wants the centralized product. Like every single example of this has been that human beings tend to, tr tend to trend towards monopolies because people like the products that monopolies generally make. They want competition. They want two or three competitors. But they don't necessarily want, you know, 10 different brands of cell phone that, um, you know, you know, like and, and Android, of course, did it slightly different than iOS as you as a good, you know, like, you know, differentiator. But generally, these things tend to trend towards centralization. And almost every example has been like that. This is what's happened. And I think disaster sometimes could change things. Like, let's say, for example, when the smartphone came out, it dramatically disrupted the previous infrastructure, uh, the power structure in the, in the, the communication uh, industry with AT&T and Bell and all these different companies being sort of at the center. And then tech sort of rolled in. And so in, uh, you definitely get some of that disruption through tech and maybe a, a, a different type of decentralization. But notice each time it gets disrupted, there's a massive event, massive change happens. A lot of businesses go out of business, et cetera, et cetera. And then something new comes in. And then those centralize, and maybe the same thing happens over and over again. Someone kicks over the hornet's nest, and all the bees have to go and find a new place to live. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like some sort of natural um, tendency um, is not really built into most blockchains today that I've seen. I don't see like the the mathematics of like biophysics that Ethan talked about being incorporated into any of the cosmos chains, even though like that was one of his talks back in like 2017, 2018. Like I haven't seen that thinking like truly pushed into this space. Maybe there's people building it. I just haven't seen it. I'd be interested to like find out. But anyway, yeah, people have like tried to model things after like mycelial networks, which is like, you know, fungal networks under the, um, you know, under forest beds, you know, where like this massive organism is just one big fungus, but it's actually got tons and tons of branches and you can cut it in different places, nothing happens to it. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of different ways. And, you know, some of the different other computational platforms like uh, DAGs, um, like graph technologies, like um, Constellation, uh, IOTA, there's a few types of networks that are non-blockchain networks that also are doing interesting things to try to, um, like, have a different style of decentralization. And I, th I think maybe part of the answer, actually, to some of this could be when things like Celestia come out, when things like um, these new like uh, order book based blockchains come out, maybe what will happen is we'll just end up using so many different app chains that we will maybe individually they'll be centralized in many ways. 
but because each of them have interesting utilities, perhaps we'll decentralize that way because our money will be going in all different directions and the composability between these different blockchains will sort of like um, create a sort of indirect decentralization perhaps. So, and also, I mean, in the perfect world, uh, while I also put a question mark in price discovery, then uh, liquid staking derivatives also enable a great way of decentralizing the set if basically the liquid staking provider just randomly delegates to people or evenly delegates to everybody. So if uh, we want to be more capital efficient and we use liquid staking derivatives, uh, then of course there's another risk in terms of additional smart contract risk or whatever that might be. But, but also, also the trade-offs of centralization of governance, remember? That's yeah, the, the, the question is if we still have proxy governance potentially put into this, right? That you, if you can, if you hold SD Atom, you are also qualified to vote uh, in relation to the stake that you're responsible for. I know that, for example, Stride doesn't have it at the moment, but I think that's stuff that also long-term data was working on. I don't know. How, that how would that even be possible, though? Because, I mean, you'd have to have a lockup period for some period of time or else it's just waiting to be exploited and then... I don't think that you, I mean, you could, uh, that, I mean, there are um, systems like what we have seen from Prism uh, with their AMS, uh, which is basically the platypus model where you could say you can only vote if you're holding ST Atom for 21 days, uh, right, which is then liquid, but you are not qualified if you're not holding it for such a time. And you could see it on chain, right? If Wallet X is not holding it longer than 21 days, which is equal to the normal, which I would not be a fan of because if you're holding atom you can immediately stake it and vote on it so i would just say if you're holding it just vote because the way you could also just buy atom and stake it there is no difference but uh, if you have kind of just proxy voting uh that should be then not a problem i mean i mean unless you're uh, you're you're quite close to the spigot uh what is it the cotillion effect um if you're if you're a liquid staking provider I don't, I don't think that uh, for, for people who would be maliciously voting, I don't think that that would be an issue at all. I think that might even be an advantage for them if they could unstake it and still or sell their, their liquid stake derivative and then still vote for the, the time that passed. Yeah, there's, there's these interesting, yeah, these like almost exploits of those type of systems that can emerge. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing about proof of stake is that these are sort of like emergent properties of the system as designed. So it's not like there's a great way to prevent liquid staking occurring in these types of uh, proof of stake networks, which is fascinating. Like, I don't think people really thought through, like when the first like Cosmos white paper and such were created way back then, uh, I don't think everyone like sat around and like really game this out to the point of like, wait, What's going to happen when these people create derivatives on this? And like, what are the liquid stake uh, things that are going to merge? And then what kind of problems is that going to create for governance and yada, yada, yada? So, yeah, I mean, some, some of these things you have to wonder if liquid stake um, or even MEV, like uh, these kinds of properties of blockchains, you know, should they be just incorporated into the primary, you know, uh, function of the chain so that you can then, uh, again, try to control more of these things. But then the problem is when you do that, you'll probably have other problems that you thought you can control that emerge as new properties too, which is another mess. So like, if you think about it, okay, so the Federal Reserve, right, they try to adjust interest rates and they watch different functions of the, the world economy and say, okay, like, okay, what are our 
you know, reasons for doing this and we want to control inflation, blah, blah, blah. But for every little percentage point that they move, there's a butterfly effect all over the planet of one other problem or the other. And they're never able to fully contain all of them. And it's funny how like the more shit you try to control, the more centralized the, the, the blockchain becomes in terms of like its, its properties, which then create other weird emergent properties. <laughs> like, I don't know, like it's uh, simplicity, somehow or another, like simplicity seems to be the way to go. Uh, my suspicion is, my intuition is that Jay is probably right about immutability in that once you've sorted out, like in these types of chains, what you wanted to do, you probably shouldn't change it anymore. So there, I, I do think like when the Adam 1 versus Adam 2 proposal right now is a really great, um, like a illustrative example of these governance issues. Um, I do think there's some things about his um, his ideas that do um, that really have merit and there's no guarantee. Like when you go say, okay, I'm going to vote for Adam two. I think it's fine. I think there's, um, potential there. Like, um, there, like, uh, well, here's the potential what potential. Uh, here's the potential gold. Okay. As a, as it stands, as far as like, um, like it took, uh, thousands of years for its market cap to be what it is now. And Apple ripped it a new one in terms of just total market cap compared to how short it's been in the universe. That's the difference. So when you have centralized pools of money, you can move mountains. And from the perspective of like the growth of tech, right? Like if you compare like gold's effect on that to say, for example, I don't know, Apple's effect on that, it's just logarithmically and just exponentially different, right? So that's the difference is if you have large pools of centralized money, you can create catastrophic failures and ca uh, like unbelievable successes too, right? So that's the difference. It's asymmetric gains versus um, versus some kind of like store of value function. I think there's different reasons to do different things. And I think the, the complaint for Adam too has been, well, shit, the thing doesn't do anything. What is it going to be good for? And in the marketplace of ideas, like anybody could spin up a, a Cosmos hub chain as it stands today what makes it special it's not even all that decentralized so what makes it so special wouldn't it just go to oblivion right that's the question that people should ask like let's say thousands more like if you spun up nick a thousand more cosmos hub chains next week right which is you know you could do it um if you did you had enough money to do so um there's enough money in the world easily to do such a thing would the cosmos hub actually have any particular relevance anymore and the answer is no that's the that's the problem is it can be become it can become irrelevant only because it doesn't do anything special too well, I mean, anyway the thought. But right now aren't we heading towards irrelevance in that we're we're trying to turn it into fiat it i mean there there's not much of a way around uh i mean the guy from um either stride or quicksilver he was talking about uh getting over leveraged and um getting bailed out by by the treasury like it, it yeah this is a, a path that we've seen over and over again i don't see I, I don't see what value it brings at best they're trying to replace atom inflation with a bundle of random uh ics emissions and replace what you're getting now in atom and take the atom the ownership of the chain and give it to the treasury so that they can redistribute it to their buds? Well, I I'm not so sure, but I'm worried about the, the redistribution thing. I think the reality is that like, you, yeah, there's always going to be, um, like for example, if you trusted Steve Jobs and Wozniak with your money, 
you you just had to play that game, right? There was, that was just a risk. You either trust in people or you don't. If you don't trust in people, I think the right answer is just buy Bitcoin and call it a day. I don't think there's even a reason to buy any of the blockchains outside of Bitcoin today. None of them are credibly decentralized, including Ethereum. The entire thing is just a silly shot. And like, or just like, I would like say, well, let me just invest in like TradFi. Like, let me find a, you know, AI or machine language, you know, machine learning company that's doing great things and just do VC with them. And I probably make a lot more money. Like, so there's nothing in blockchain specifically um, that solves for everything. And I think any governance-based chain has flaws and people involved. Like, what blockchain, like, is not going to have people in the background uh, taking care of things like proposals and other things? Um, even Cosmos Hub as it is now has people in the background fixing shit from time to time and issuing updates and patches or whatever the hell, right? So it's already sort of centralized and most chains are, at least from a dev team perspective. There's nothing really, really decentralized about any of these things. Um, More or less, I do but, agree, but I mean... I'm a little bit if pessimistic have, that. If you have an inflationary anything, it's it's more or less fiat. It's uh, It's headed to zero at differing rates of speed but w which is part of the concern with atom 2 is that it it increases the rate at which we go to zero like right now we're going there much well, no, slower atom like we can reduces the um inflation rate considerably actually is the idea i i just i mean that's that's one possibility with low probability that it would happen i mean you're talking about uh if the nominal got high enough yeah that would be the reason to say like you didn't need the inflationary rewards as much well, you're talking about the nominal inflation so there there's still uh bailouts and everything to consider like average inflation it could be 10 times based on the same exact words that there are in the, in the proposal right now yeah although arguably the inflation rate for adam is quite high now too it's not exactly low but even I mean, despite that it is actually maintained um its price relative to Bitcoin has done fairly well compared to most other crypto on the planet, which is interesting, actually. Um, why that's I think it's purely meme effect, honestly. But anyway, because it doesn't do anything, right? Well, I mean, it supports the ecosystem. Sure, but I mean, you're, you're, it supports it indirectly. Like you're, you're, it, it supports. It's a much more firm support than having. Uh, it, it's like. Turning Adam into one of those bulls on Halloween where it says take one piece. So <laughs> it, you're, you're just giving everyone the opportunity to, to, to raid the, the trick-or-treat bull with Adam 2.0. Yeah, it doesn't bother me too much, honestly. It really doesn't. Like, I, just don't, I think it's a nominal amount of money in the grand scheme of things. It's like... It's a, it's a, like a, to me, it's, if, if that is a thing that prevents success, then we're fucked anyways. My, my pessimism. Like, what, I don't so think. So what, what I, in other words, I would just put my money in Bitcoin instead. If I don't see a credible reason to believe that we're going to be doing anything um, more with the chain than what it does now, or, you know, or for that matter, like I have more upside just buying Stargaze tokens, honestly. Like, it's funny because like if I'm so you have to ask yourself, what is the investor in it for? Are they in it for like value accrual, meaning their price of your token goes up? Are they in it for some utility uh, function, like let's say holding it to spend in the cosmos? Are they in it for 
um, sort of like, uh, yeah, used as a currency? Um, and if so, are we going to go to a multi-currency world, which is like what the osmosis model, like Sunny wants to do? He's like, well, let's just make it totally decentralized in the sense that like maybe we have a dozen currencies in the cosmos. So who gives a shit which one is successful at that point? You have lots of different forms of money you can float around, which that, that argument makes a lot of sense too. Um, yeah, that's what cryptocurrency is. You throw a bunch of shit against the wall and you see what sticks. Yeah, and it depends also on how much of your um, your net worth you you intend to actually hold in cryptocurrency. If you're in a hundred percent, that's one thing. If you're in five percent, it's something else. So I think people's uh, decisions are are wildly varied in terms of what they want out of their chain, depending on whether they're actually speculating on price versus whether they want to store value there. Uh, it's so like huge differences in the way people think about this. What point is there to buy Adam two point well, if you actually think that um, uh, the this hub and spoke model that creating, um, if you believe that, so for Adam 2.0 to be successful and useful for any particular purpose, um, you would have a substantial increase in uh, Cosmos um, consumer chains that are attached to that for whatever reason. Um, is that going to happen? That's the gamble. Like, are you going to be able to track, create this thing? And people are actually going to really, really heavily use. That's not Adam 2.0. And that's the gamble, really. Yeah, and there's no guarantee that's going to happen, even with just basic ICS. Uh, so, isn't that going to happen with or without Adam 2.0? Adam 2.0 is the treasury, from, from what I've gathered. No, the, the treasury is just one piece point. of it. So Adam 2.0 has a whole value accrual mechanism and ultimately a revenue generator for Adam, right? There's a whole, like, uh, uh, what is it called? The, there are these... Um, separate pieces that of the mechanism that are going to change too it's not just the treasury treasury is just the piece where you you assume, you get funding and you can signal to the developer community across the world that hey look we've got a half a billion dollars that we're going to commit to or however much money we're going to commit to bringing in developers into this chain do business development like the polygon people do and bring a fuck ton of people in like that's the so idea saying that people are going to want to buy adam so that they can give it to a development community that may or may not do anything with it and they will yeah exactly will which is exactly what no... polygon does right it just has massive amounts of business development that's why it's growing so quickly so like for example apple does this all the time like it did it all the time it basically created um reasons why developers would come and build on the app store right because when the app store first came out i don't know how old you are but like when the app store first came out there was nothing on it right there was basically just a few apple apps and developers had to decide wait are these idiots at apple going to accomplish anything or should we go throw in with microsoft you know where we know there's a lot more developer base so you have to attract people and certainly lots of incentives were given for like app development um, with Apple at that time to sort of like, you know, give them preferential treatment and all this other shit. It's almost like tax incentives to bring people into your city and stuff like that. So yeah, it depends on whether you believe in doing that or not. You're saying it's not like uh, Amazon where they could name their price because they were the only storefront that had the audience. Well, but as Amazon didn't have that at the very beginning, Right. And Amazon, right, it wasn't successful in the very beginning. No, they were just giving away all their money. Like the stock was shit for like a decade. Right. So, like, I mean, you know, it had. Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is they gave up 
um, in like, you know, like Amazon Prime and everything else, they were actually making things really, really cheap for people. Transactions were really cheap on the, let's say, the Amazon network. And now it's getting more expensive to own Amazon Prime. It's particularly, um, it wasn't particularly like profitable in the beginning. They gave away tons of money to do it, right? Like they, they, they for, they forewent profitability for network growth. And that's an argument you could make. I mean, you could also make the argument that those were, those were bad ideas that all that does is take market share and not, not do anything for like, what are the developers doing? If, if that's their route to success, like they're, they're using a, a sleight of hand. Well, maybe, or you have to have venture capital, right? Developers aren't going to work for free. So you can either bring in VCs like Solana does, or the difference would be the community becomes a VC. There's only there's only two ways to get that kind of developer uh, base to show up, unless you want to wait for a decade or two. But by then, who knows what technology takes over, right? You're, it's not like tech stays still. If Apple or Amazon or whoever the fuck sits around, you just lose. That's it, right? There's no, there's like the the, the marketplace is extremely brutal and sort of destructive, right? Most tech companies over the last twenty years have failed, right? Like they're all gone. So only a few of the ones you remember are still remaining, but most of them just were decimated because they're, they weren't able to How many of them like mid, midstream just decided to change directions? What do you mean? Like, did, I don't remember Apple producing cars before they went into devices and things like that. So I'm wondering how is it supposed to work in Adam's case? How is what's supposed to work? Like bringing developers going going from um, being a community owned uh, chain where developers can feel like they they have some some say in what happens versus uh, turning it into a, a a VC hub in in type of characteristics. Uh, I don't know. It depends. It depends on who runs it and what happens, right? It's a gamble. So it's. I think it's a question of like, uh, do you do you make that gamble and try to compete with the likes of Arbitrum and Polygon, or don't you just sit around and wait and see what happens? How does hope, it compete like, with them? What's that? Uh, how does it compete with Arbitrum and for the number of developers that exist on this planet? Right. You, you there's a finite supply of people, and they're going to go and build wherever. And then consumers will go where the actual, you know, the, the products are, right? So you, so you're going to you pay them to build wherever, not necessarily on Adam. Or yeah, on Adam. No, no. The development budget is to bring in developers that are going to work on this chain, right? That's the purpose of bringing those people in. If you're going to use, if you, if you was... use treasuries at all, like you, so you know, like if you want to build a blockchain today, like say Network, or if you want to be like. DYDX or something like that, you just get a bunch of venture capital firms to pay for it, right? So you're going to get that effect no matter what. By the way, you're going to get tons and tons of centralized chains. Um, there'll be millions of those. And the question is, when, when Google decides to build a blockchain, you think they're not going to fuck you over? Like you just literally gave them the entire, you, you gave the entire code base to anybody to build anything, right? So if they want to come and compete, if let's say the Google blockchain opened tomorrow, I, mean, I expect I bet uh, you money, people it's to act maliciously whenever they cap. can. I yeah. don't think that their, their market, which cap is also why twenty billion. I expect the same amount of Adam. Right, their market cap would be twenty billion within the, the world. 
yeah, they would completely decimate us. Like in way, like, like, it, yeah. When the, when big tech decides they want to get involved, you understand. Like, Apple makes fifty billion dollars a quarter, right? They could buy, they could create anything that we create now with absolute ease, with absolute mm. breathtaking ease. Like their power is just immeasurable. We're like like fleas, and we're worrying about like spending a half a billion dollars here and there. It's just embarrassing. Like we're gonna get rolled over no matter what. And like nobody wants to really do anything about it, but sit around and look around and pray for decentralization or whatever. Like, like nobody I don't know wants. If you guys to can hear me, but I got shit. That's to my do, feeling about it. People That's my like yeah. Like my feeling is like there we're not like people in the, in the crypto space just aren't fully committed enough, especially community. Hey, Sefi, can yeah. you still hear Nick? Yeah, yeah. Because he's talking. I can. I can hear you. Can you hear Nick? Because when you oh no, the call, I can't. I think Nick uh, maybe he maybe have to be, my network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I think he just left and just take him up for speakers because he had some comments there. Oh, yeah. He's not here. I think he dropped to reconnect, maybe. Something happened there. I think sometimes when these networks switch, you get connected. Yeah. Anyway, you, but you see the thing. Like, so, so Nick's pessimistic about the, this Adam 2.0 idea. He's pessimistic about creating a treasury. He's worried about cronies sitting around, you know, like shuffling everybody's money, like where they, they create a tokenomics plan where they, basically create you know half a billion dollars out of thin air uh diluting the existing atom holders and he's worried that basically like that money will be misappropriated not used well and like you're, you're not going to be able to sort of like you know be the next tesla or something right like so that's the issue he's worried about now yeah, is that a build a house you got to pay someone doing yeah that. and the question is do you want to actually invest in the future or not or do you, are you happy with Adam the way it is? You think that's all it needs to ever be? That's really the argument being made on that vote, right? That's what's happening. And that's why tokenomics design is so important. And like you will have very, very highly disparate opinions about how that should be done, right? When you have a half a billion dollars, first of all, number one, um, how many here have credible ability to spend $500 billion, or I mean, I'm sorry, $500 million on developers or whatever and, and be sure that you can do a good job distributing it. So Nick's points are not incorrect. That is not an easy thing to do by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so like it's like giving governments money, right? Like what do they do? They waste most of it, right? Because they're not able to allocate capital in an efficient way. The market tends to do a better job of doing that generally. So I don't disagree with him on those points for sure. Um, but you have to decide as a as a community, as whatever, and well, you know, Ethan Buckman and some of the other guys, Interchain Foundation, you know, and people that put together that Adam 2 proposal, they put it up for vote. And if it passes, that's the law of the land, right? That's the whole point of governance. And that's the direction we'll go. If that vote doesn't pass, well, we'll go a different route, I suppose. And maybe someone else will come up with a different proposal that people like more. So, right, it's about, it's about consensus, ultimately. And if people want to do something different, by all means. But like what oftentimes happens is, is that People like there's plenty of naysayers who notice that every possible plan, by the way, has failure points, every plan, but then doing nothing, uh, the assumption that doing nothing that doesn't have a cost or an opportunity cost is not usually true in business, right? Like how many businesses do well by making no changes whatsoever and just sit there? I don't know. I'm not very many. Most businesses on this planet are all gone, right? So like most of the ones that ever existed on this planet are gone. So that makes you wonder. 
um, what um, what the longevity of these things actually is, and do you have to fight for that using your funds um, or not? And you know, even companies like, for example, um, I don't know, your Apples and Googles or whoever. Many companies have diluted their shares right by selling more shares from time to time if they felt like they had to raise funds. So this is yes, not Sophie, outside Sophie, of the norm. One, one yeah. point that one could make is basically that um, when it comes to the big question if something, some token is a security, I mean, all this arguing going on is really uh, hard to argue that it's a, a security, right? Because it's really a community that's making a governance. And I think actually... Well, the, it's the a community Adam security. <laughs> it's some kind of, it's still sort of a security in a way. It, yeah, because you're promising, to, you're promising future benefits um to people but so. whom is promising to whom right right it's a big difference there's there's not a centralized entity so that makes a big difference you know so i see a let's say the the basic idea is is there when, when you decentralize these things it could get really interesting when it comes to this kind of um let's say regulatory description of of someone is really profiting of the rest right yeah but imagine Imagine um, Apple comes along. They decide they're going to spin up a blockchain of some kind for whatever reason. They don't need any community validators. They have enough computational power in, the ha in your hands in, in the form of cell phones and um, in their cloud networks to run a system that is very hard to shut down by most governments. And they don't need to have decentralization at all. They control the entire thing. And I guarantee you consumers will use this because it'll be right on their phone. They can transfer value and they can do all the things that blockchains can do. But now it's run by Apple instead of us. That's really how this works. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's very, very easy at this point for them to do that. Like easy as in all the choices they've made not to incorporate um, crypto based techniques into uh, you know, like into their software so far, whether it's Google, Android or or Apple, it's largely been by choice. If they decide to do these things, there is not really a law of any land that can prevent them from fully doing these things either, by the way. Um, they could le try to legislate against it, but they'd probably fail. I think with the Facebook thing with Diem or whatever, they kind of gave up early. But I think the likes of Apple, like, I don't think they'd be able to, um, like, even the government wouldn't be able to prevent them from um, executing this on some parts of the world and, you know, essentially it would just spread. So I think like they already have the computer networks. They're all, your phones are in your hands, Androids, iPhones, mm, you know, and they're, they're the most widely distributed objects on the planet, probably in the tech space, right? More so than crypto distribution. Your cell phones are much wider distributed, way more like in individually sort of distributed in terms of that type of the, the, the decentralization. And you could create networks with that, um, and that would be your main competitor. And I promise you, it like in those you know billions of dollars that Apple spends every year, they are working on things like you know, a blockchain and machine learning, distributed tech. Um, you know, they just haven't decided to release something. That doesn't mean they're not working on it. Like they most certainly are. Like people think that like people at Apple and Google are some kind of like blockchain morons or something. Like oh, they don't know <laughs> that's them, and they're just they're not working on these things. Of course they are. They just haven't seen a credibly, um, you know, useful enough system yet for them to bother. Like this idea that like, yeah, like, you know, they're just waiting around, you know, they don't want to incorporate Bitcoin for whatever reasons. Yeah, it's because it, it's, it doesn't bring enough money to them to do so. 
if you think about just the amount of money just that flows into Apple every year and just revenue alone, like it's it's obnoxious sums of money, right? Like them adding Bitcoin or whatever makes almost no serious uh, benefit to them at all. So like that's why they haven't bothered yet. But we'll see. Like they'll they'll get there, and then all of a sudden you'll say, well, look, like we waited for you know mainstream adoption, and when mainstream adoption comes, people aren't going to like it. Like I think people like it now, like the ethos of crypto, because it's like this sort of like libertarian um, like space where you know a bunch of crypto nerds can hang out and do funny things. But people want mainstream adoption, and they say it. But at the end of the day, do they really? They, or they just want them to? They just want their bags pumped because they happen to own a coin. I think it's more of that than anything else. But um, that's just my like cynical, cynical take on this because I've seen tech for so long. Like I, I think you know big players will tend to come in and sort of take over anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, uh, 10, did you have any other comments or kit? I think, uh, I've got some phone calls. So I might drop for a bit. It's been a good discussion. I think calls for Don Coop, but he dropped off. It was, uh, talking about, um, putting in a new, um, like Shannon's theory variables into the validators and see if, if that would be a manual I'll work about. To do what? Like uh, cause a reshuffling of delegations or something? Yeah, because implementing AI or even uh, as is, even if it's centralized at this point in time with the Cosmos chain, that the validators individually, if they end up putting uh, the new variables in for uh, making out for entropy, but using like a Shannon's um, entropy entropy uh, variable law or theory, that it could um, reevaluate. The, the goal system. would be to do what though, like to to do what to the validator. To recreate the uh, variable components of what is a hard versus the um, soft encryptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure that makes sense, but I got like there's only so many things you can do to a validator. Um, the the most obvious thing is if the validator is centralized, either in voting power or in financial power, you could kind of forcibly change that from time to time. It'd almost be like stealing from the rich and giving to the poor though. So the problem is it's like this weird, like socialist model, which obviously has certain failures as well. well the, the <laughs> so it's, but it's right now, like if the validators update that way that the variables are already in there, like an MC hard, um, uh, internet computing language. So when the cosmos and everything else has the paradigm shift in technology, that um, whether it's in centralized, it would you know convert over to um, with uh, different TCPs. That the cosmos chain as a whole would be able to uh, interoperate, and nothing will change for people that are staking and so forth. Mm, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if I fully understand. You'd have to like write out a thesis and some sort of layperson te terminology to like even clarify what that means. But yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, I think two ideas that I've, I haven't really heard discussed, at least in the circles that I've been listening in is one, I think it would be interesting if, uh, so I don't know if you've used auth Z at all, uh, where like essentially you, you give permission to the delegators to like restake your staking rewards, but wouldn't it, to me, it would be interesting if, um, like maybe after a year period, your tokens like become instantly unstaked. So it'd be a rolling time frame, um, and you would have to then go in and reselect a new delegator. 
Um, so you would, you know, obviously if you wanted to maintain your rewards, you know, you'd have to set some, <laughs> you know, some, some sort of alarms for you to go back in and redelegate, but it would be on a rolling basis. Like it wouldn't just be like the entire validator set would just all of a sudden be, you know, unbonded. Um, the other idea that I kind of thought of that would be interesting to see is what if the, at the, the further you are up the top with voting power, the longer, uh, like. I don't know whether it would be exponentially or not or or linearly or what, but the longer your unstaking period is and then it diminishes significantly. So you're actually empowering those lower validators to attract, you know, atoms because they're they're essentially more liquid. So price pops really great one day, you know, hey, maybe you have a six hour unstaking period and you can get out of your you know your validator and sell or do whatever you wanted to do with your i, I think the concern i think the concern there shoot is the um you have to be careful you're not disincentivizing securing the network right so if you if you make but i guess you're right like if you have some sort of scale where it's not too extreme um maybe there's a few days advantage this way or that way or a, a slightly different yield advantage this way or that way it wouldn't incentivize like the coinbase validator to go and spin up four or five of their own, but it still makes sense for them to hold all their power and one validator. On the other hand, you're sort of at least providing small incentives for the little guy um, to like help grow those things. But it's, it's, it's all this kind of, this is the, like, if you think about it, like these are some of the same issues that the, the sort of like centralized money power in capitalism folks versus the socialism folks always argue about, right? It's this kind of thing where, like, is it good to have all the money at one spot where, you know, a crisis would basically lead to a total disaster? Or is it better to have more money in the hands of the so-called people or the little guy or the little validators or small businesses or whatever? And it's always this back and forth, you know, argument. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the right answer is, but I've seen those, those suggestions made true, like where, yeah, like the smaller validators might have a little bit higher yield or, you know, just so just a little bit so that you're not like making it, uh, uh, you know, like so when when a retail user is looking down the list, he goes, oh, look, I can get 10.4% interest here. Over there, it's only 10.2, but it's not going to be such a big deal that a large validator is going to like spin up 20 little ones to take advantage of this thing, right? Um, also, maybe what it is is shrewd. Maybe if one validator is really big, that increases the likelihood that the smaller ones have a slightly larger pool. But if the big one were to break up, right, then it, they would automatically uh, eliminate the benefit that, that was previously there because that large validator would actually have been the cause, the deterministic effect of why the other validators are getting paid more. And if they broke into three pieces, then now all of a sudden, right, you wouldn't have that effect anymore. Like it would dilute that effect and therefore eliminate the the need to even break into three separate ones. Yeah. So yeah. So financial security is one piece of how delegations and validators work. And the second piece is the governance voting piece of it, which um, interestingly, like on the Adam proposal, I think Coinbase, for example, who has one of the largest ones. And the reason is because they're liquid staking people's Adam on Coinbase and providing them a little bit of yield. So like on Adam, I think your yield's like 5% on Coinbase, even though the actual yield's like 19. But um, they're doing that. And then they typically, uh, Coinbase tweeted about Adam 1 versus Adam 2. I think they, they, I don't know, they expressed a little bit of disdain for the Adam 2 proposal for whatever reason. 
and uh, and they um, but they did not commit to voting on it. Right. So they don't want to be they realize that they themselves are so centralized that they're voluntarily saying, wait a minute, not all of our people that are in our Adam delegations um, all agree with Adam, too and don't necessarily agree with Coinbase. They're only using Coinbase as a place to liquid stake their Atom. And they don't, like, not everyone who owns Atom on Coinbase necessarily believes in this vote or that vote. That's an interesting thing, too, in that, like, I wonder why they don't actually put off-chain voting. Like, for example, let's say you could vote on Coinbase based on how much Atom you had, and then maybe the validator for Atom or Cosmos, um, I'm sorry, the the... Coinbase validator for Cosmos would then go and vote on behalf of the users of Coinbase, right? They don't even do that. So the centralized exchanges, while they're they like to leech off of the the the, the financial incentives of uh, and and the yield, they don't necessarily participate in voting, nor do they extend the voting rights to the holders of the coins on those on those centralized exchanges. So the whole process is a bit fascinating. Um, so they're they're the centralized exchanges are sort of like yeah well they bring they bring we we all want our coins on those exchanges because we need a fiat gateway right so we wind up like marrying centralized exchanges because we need our fiat to come through but then when it comes to these other properties of how they sort of leech off the system um because do we really want them to vote like do we want like brian armstrong to decide you know, with with the power of the Coinbase validator to vote in this, probably not, right? On the other hand, if it's an off-chain vote, how do we know it's not being manipulated? Like, let's say Binance decides to vote, um, you know, on whatever, and how do we know, like, that if when it's off-chain, that they're not like, you know, doing whatever CZ says or something? Like, you know, who knows? So the voting on chain is there's a reason for that, and the centralized exchanges have not bothered incorporating a voting mechanism. Um, into your wallet on the centralized exchange, which I think is interesting that they haven't done so. Um, they could, right? They could start doing that, but that's a lot more development cost for them because every coin they have on um, that's a proof of stake coin on their network, everybody else is going to complain, hey, you didn't put voting for our coin. And so they're going to have to add all that shit to every single, um, you know, every single user of centralized exchanges. And that get, that's complicated. Anyway, because these, these are all liquid stake positions, right? A lot of yeah, them are. but but isn't but it, I mean, technically, like, isn't proof of stake, you know, essentially a representative democracy anyway? Like, I'm staking. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we it can is. override, right? Like, so if your validator voted, you know, yes to Adam too, and you're just like, nah, f that, like, you can go override that stake. Where obviously we can't do that, you know, in the United States today, um, but. I mean, you're kind of like, so Coinbase, I think, would be in the right to vote however they wanted to. I do think I heard maybe Jacob or someone else in a space maybe, you know, several weeks ago talking about they are talking about potentially having a way for validators to like dual vote, like not vote with like 100 percent of their voting power one particular way. So like maybe, you know, a, a validator does do something where they take a poll of their, you know, you know, their active uh, participants in in um in you know staking and maybe the votes like 70 30 so maybe that's how you know they would vote their validators votes is like a 70 30 split kind of thing um i don't i don't know what if that's like helps or hurts what we're trying to accomplish because then yeah each but. each mathematic approach you take 
has consequences, right? Like it's almost like no matter what you do, there's a trade-off at some level or the other. And people have thought of every version of these kinds of tweaks and nobody's been able to find a solution. This is why like I you know, started out earlier saying it does not appear that there's a great way to prevent human centralization in general outside of natural disasters. And even then it's a maybe, but like, imagine like, what would it take, for example, for the world order to change today? Like the planet's world order, like let's say for example, an X-class solar flare of sufficient size were to strike the, you know, like the, the, the world head on and sort of like bake our silicon based chips into oblivion uh, and uh, make all our cars stop, our petro agro stop, our oil a drilling uh, machine stop, make the, all the computers crash and or sufficient numbers of them to cause complete havoc. Medicine would basically crash. Plastics formation would crash. Like the whole world would be in just a total shit show, right? Total Armageddon. Uh, and then you have, of course, a centralized currency like the dollar. That system would crash because the digital dollar system would be in crisis theoretically, right? There's no way to re reinstate that system because even the equipment necessary to rebuild the electrical generators of the 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 country's electrical grid, right? The transformers and all of those things would basically pop. So what would end up happening is is you would need to, like potentially, um, if they were to the arc and just be destroyed, then you'd have to like rebuild all of those things without all of the tools that you normally use to build those things with, right? Like to drill oil and petrochemicals and all the other you know metals and shit you need. So that would be an example of like a natural disaster event that would reset this planet. Is it going to happen one day? I don't know. Maybe it can, though. I don't remember what year it happened last. Um, it was after the telegraph was invented. I forget, but like the world was hit by a flare and you know burned out lots of little systems. But we haven't had a, a hit of that size. An EMP from the sun hit us in over a hundred years, so we haven't had to sort of like deal with that in the modern age. But imagine all the planes and shit falling out of the sky or whatever. Like I don't know. Like. It would be an interesting day, never, no, for sure. And um, the last time we had a solar flare miss us, actually, I don't know if you know this, but like 2012, um, a, a, lar a very large solar flare, like a existential type uh, crisis solar flare, uh, crossed the orbital path of the Earth. Um, but the Earth did not um, get hit by it because we were not you know, at the right place at the right time. But the size of the flare, had it hit the Earth, would have decimated all electronic systems and we'd be all in this fucking stone age right now. So yeah, there's, there's certainly lots of um, risks to centralization, whether it's like with electronics, whether it's medicine, food, um, all these little, all these different ways that um, you could cause like chaos. And what I was saying earlier in sort of like a blockchain design is it'd be interesting if there was a way to model that chaos by almost creating it programmatically where it's almost like when you put your money in this fucking thing, it's like a big video game. Like anything could happen. Like, you know, it's like a Sim City where a tornado can come and like, you know, destroy 10% of your money just randomly or something. Or the flip side might be true. Your yield might go up like to, you know, 300% APY for like three days or something just out of the blue and uh, stuff like that, right? Just crazy, um, like a chain where just, just chaos is happening all the time could be really interesting in the sense that like if it, you make it almost impossible to govern, if you make it impossible to change and you create all this chaos in it and validators and everybody else have to play this game of just, just violent financial game, then it could be maybe really interesting. I don't know. Like maybe that's the, the solution is programmatic chaos. And, um, and uh, like that's, you just live in that environment. And then, so like when you stick your money in there, 
you're like, oh, no, besides the normal ups and downs of the chain, it does all this shit too. <laughs> like, you know, and so it's hard to trade on it. Like, think about that, right? Imagine um, it would be very hard to like put a long or short position um, if you knew like that it's possible for a 10% increase in the chain, uh, the coin supply to be minted within like 24 hours. Imagine something crazy happening like that, right? So you just have this sudden event and like, whoa, wait a minute. And you have these kind of leverage positions. It's going to make people um, think twice about leverage trading by watching some chart because there are, there are tornadoes about to hit you, right? There's all sorts of things that would decimate you if you were wrong and you can't predict them just by watching the news or something. And uh, those kinds of things I think would be, would make for a freaking fun, like blockchain for sure. <laughs> like it would be a, uh, uh, it'd be a hell of a time. I think, yeah, it's, I, I think of the Sim City disasters model where just shit sort of happens. Or like if you played like Sim Earth long ago, like, you know, meteor strikes or something like that. Or like there's a, there's a extinction level event of some kind. And maybe like, you know, the 20% of your validators go offline for some reason and they're not getting any staking rewards because of who knows what. Right. So Godzilla you, you ate your wallet. You know? <laughs> yeah, Godzilla ate your wallet. <laughs> so yeah, like all sorts of weird like events that would, um, that would, um, you know, have some sort of financial cost, but make substantial unpredictability to where, you know, you would maybe throw $100 at this thing, but you're like, I'm not putting too much money in this because I don't want it to. Um, I don't want, uh, I don't want my money to go down, right? So what would happen is, is you'd have lots of very small investors who are not willing to put mega quantities of money because of the chaos. And as a result, you'll wind up with way less selling pressure in a sense, because no serious institutional investor is going to put money in this thing, right? You force it to be a community decentralized chain. Does that make sense? Like, it's like, it's so chaotic and stupid that only a complete retard would buy this, right? <laughs> That's the chain you want to create and make it immutable so that like, whatever these things are, they're in the system and you can't change them. Once the chain starts, that's it. There's no governance. There's no voting. There's no team tokens. There is nothing. It pumps, it dumps, it does whatever it does and just let it ride and just let it go, right? You just like, it's like unleashing this beast onto the planet and just letting it go, right? Like, you know, fly, bird, fly. <laughs> and, and it just does crazy shit all every day. Like, you know, maybe some credibly nutty event happens on a daily basis. Imagine that chain. It'd be a hell of a lot of fun. Like, oh shit, my APR went through up 300% today, you know, or like, or whoa, every, there's a tax on every transaction today of 3% and, uh, or something, you know, like just random things like that, just that really would uh, make it hard to produce, like, it'd be hard to game the system, right? With, with any kind of consistency, if you had these kind of events, maybe take like 10 parameters and randomize the, the numerical values of them. Like, it'd be a lot of fun. Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about creating such, such a thing. I'm sure there's some developer who like, fuck yeah, let's do this. And uh, <laughs> and I bet you the fucking thing would moon. Like, I bet you the thing would be, like, it would be the $10 billion chain. People are like, what in the fuck is this? I'm playing on this thing, right? Like, just the sheer, like, mimetic value alone, and people would come to play, right? So imagine, like, because you, if you had lots and lots of people with tiny amounts of money, um, you, you don't need to have mega funds show up, right? You don't want hedge funds throwing $10 million in there. You want a bunch of little microtransactions. And I think, like, yeah, the, the Dogecoin crowd would almost certainly show up for that.
<laughs> so, and and for that matter, the the entirety of the crypto space would I think be interested because it would be so um, like it'd be a different way to sort of force decentralization by doing weird things. I think that could be pretty pretty interesting. Like, yeah, maybe even like there's a period of time where it goes by and you know maybe it like automatically um, rebalances certain numbers of wallets or something. Like, you, know, you lost five atom today, and it went to your friend Shroot over here. And uh, shoot one, you lost. Too bad, or whatever. You know, like you get this little message, and uh, some sort of uh, and shoots like, oh yeah, shit yeah, I got your five atoms or whatever. Um, it's just posting your seed phrase on like Reddit and like tweeting it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe you, you maybe maybe you uh, encourage this. Imagine shoot. Like let's say, if people were to send you. Uh, like I don't know, uh, a certain amount of money, then you you know because you're you're basically being incentivized for doing transactions of some kind, right? So you want massive amounts of bot traffic, right? You're going to encourage bot traffic. Think about this, and you you encourage that kind of like high wallet activity to where more and more bots arrive, and then pay for transactions, and they're trying to mine essentially more of the um, sort of like incentive rewards for fucking around. Like, like you, you'd create interesting, like lotteries, almost like the the Bitcoin, um, you know, the the hash rewards, essentially, essentially, right? Something like that. Yeah, it's like when my, whenever my dad goes to the casino, he always looks for a like a slot machine that someone has like sat at for like hours and hours, and then just like finally like lost all their money and got up and walked away. And like his strategy is to like swoop in afterwards because like now that has a higher a potentially a higher propensity to win because it went, you know, five hours, they saw grandma sitting there, you know, dumping her social security check in and she didn't win. So, you know, sometimes he's gone up and won within like, you know, a couple spins or something stupid. So like, that's his, that's his shtick when he goes to, you know, Vegas. Yeah. 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 Just watch people. And I'm not even saying like create a mega casino. I'm just saying like, there's a bunch of events that happen along the way that make it so hard to predict like price action because of the drama that, you know, you, you wind up not having as much maybe leverage and that kind of thing in the system, yet you retain the sort of like the wave action. It's almost like, you know, you're going to get the, like the ocean, you're going to get the periodic tsunami. You're going to get the periodic, like, you know, the weather gets really cold. You're going to get like, so all of the sort of things that the weather does and what like, you know, what the ocean feels like in a sense, you get this idea. Um, you know, there are certain constraints, like, you know, obviously a tsunami can only get so big and maybe, you know, the water can only get so cold, et cetera. So there are constraints involved, but at the end of the day, like there's sufficient randomness to make it kind of a blood sport and completely uninteresting to anybody that uh, has a brain. And therefore, like it creates like this arbitrary decentralization through um, the, the encouragement of like smaller amounts of investment indirectly and maybe what happens is is the punishment initially to invest is high right <laughs> and then maybe the the entropy or the the drama decreases over a period of like 10 years so if you survive that right then you're incredibly fucking rich but if you don't it's just whatever it's just it uh like you decide to like sell and get out of there because you're like this thing is stupid um so yeah like so there have to be interesting um maybe if you're in it for a really long time there should be a a decrease maybe in some of the detrimental effects to your wallet or to your to your funds and and so you're incentivized that way not just through like 
uh, yield, but maybe sort of like defense systems or something like that. Or maybe, uh, Shrut, you do something else weird. Like maybe you do a three-coin system, one for store of value, one for currency, one for governance. And like there's all sorts of fucked up uh, interactions between the three coins, right, to, <laughs> to prevent one of them from becoming like too powerful. It's almost like a separation of powers type of thing. Um, and, and you introduce all of this chaos in between. Yeah, there could be some interesting stuff. Um, anyway, and then so like people might shrew, like they might say, well, the governance tokens have these risks and the, the yield tokens have that risk and the, um, you know, whatever. Like, so, so what people do is they'll say, well, we're going to make an ETF token with these two to mitigate some of the volatility. So they'll end up winding up with like some kind of derivative or like a liquid staked thing, right? So you'll, you'll wind up seeing these kinds of activities. And then, uh, and then contrary to that, you'd have like DPEG events of the fucking, <laughs> of the staking token. Like you'd, you'd figure out how to manufacture that. So, you know, the staking token, the, the what do you call it? The, the liquid staking token doesn't get too big because if it gets too big, then the system will automatically punish that too. So, you know, that's the idea, right? You prevent yeah. any one part of it from getting too I powerful. like the idea where someone could buy or whatever a token and like add it to a pool and if it hits a certain value then it just like kind of induces one of these events so that way you kind of have people that just like kind of maybe live for you know fucking chaos yeah 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 that's a good point like yeah you actually and you create a game actually where people can come fuck around with other people um by yeah exactly <laughs> and and you know you don't almost want to create like a dynamic because you know it's going to happen anyway cartels form in these type of systems right so you create a system that um encourages cartel formation but also systematically you can get your cartel destroyed too so it's very similar to how like when you go play like i don't know world of warcraft or some shit you get a group of people together and like maybe something goes wrong you know some random event happens and the whole team gets wiped out right and everyone has to start over and the whole night's over. <laughs> like, so those kinds of, yeah, those kinds of uh, activities to um, like either incentivize or disincentivize, like validator cartels, um, individual cartels, or whoever wants to game the system, I think could be done. Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was part one of a two-part Chepe Space tokenomic design basics. Recorded on Monday, November 7th, 2022. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep listening, head on over to TerraSpaces.org slash donate and show some support. Shout out to our friends over at Spark IBC for hooking it up with a year-round, 24-7, 365 way for you to help us help you help everybody. That's right. The Spark campaign is back. And it ain't going away now. It's permanent. So check it out over terraspaces.org slash donate. And for more information on Spark, check out sparkibc.zone. Digging in the dirt, trying to find the treasure. Learning how to mix this business with pleasure. I'm kicking a lecture, spitting conjecture. High as a bird while I'm flipping the gesture. Living like a jester, infesting these extras. Dissecting a mess, an eagle looking headstrong. Infinitesimal, the spit in his next world. And if you don't agree, well then I'm afraid you're dead wrong. So leave the mess hall and clean your plates up. I can't believe the rest of y'all feed on makeup. Bereavement breakup to rearrange your wake up. Big ol' bloody mess like a scene from Braveheart. Driving race car. 
stars that beat the fate It's hard to meet your maker when the features ain't marked Trying to slide underneath the paywall I'm afraid this motherfucker's gone AWOL You had better unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and kick down your neck Sir, yes, sir Private Joker, why did you join my beloved gold? Sir, to kill, sir No, you're a killer Sir, yes, sir Let me see your war face Sir, you got a war face? on the earth trying to mine some headspace give a little gift like i'm lifted dead weights the risk of resting kicks the nest egg square in the nuts y'all feeling testy the breeze swept in no need of resting the least depressing so sweet but messy i need the best day to keep professing and hope my body doesn't leave behind a red stain pouring out a little liquor for the dead states while the rest wait and bleed domestic no means to gestate breeds the best cake beauty on the back of the queen she just ate so take a little dive down a K-hole while I flip the B-roll right into A-roll and make the payroll go a little further. Replace the merger with the tainted version. Spaces.